flying in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing Boz Scats. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we love in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. I wish that I had seven limbs. That way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dímelo, dímelo. At least I kind of understand it. Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to episode 83. 83. How is this even happening? Of the debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray. For some reason, there's an interview clip of Kareem Pierre Jean-Pierre playing in the background. My bad. Twitter has a mind of its own. Regardless, here we are. We're doing an earlier show today. Oh, is this working? Am I messing this up? We're doing a little bit of an earlier show today because I have a flight to catch this evening. But I'm happy to be able to get this in uh, and take your questions about the always controversial <laughs> Representative Rokana. I know people have lots of feelings about whether it is even worth it to continue to interview him at all. But, you know, I got to say, his office uh, will periodically reach out like they did uh, before this interview. Excuse me, I've got things falling everywhere. Like they did before this interview. And I don't feel like it's responsible to say no to an opportunity to question a sitting Congress member, especially when so few of them are ever willing to submit to questioning by left media. So even though I know it sometimes might seem like, what's the point of this? And it isn't necessarily the time. You know, it's not time pegged to something I particularly feel the need to question him hard about the same way I did after he had had that exchange with Max Blumenthal. I still think it's worthwhile in the grander uh, goals of having good relationships with the people that we need to be able to hold accountable. So that's why we got the interview that we got. And I would love to hear from you all about how you feel about it. So let's get to it. Dade, you're up first. What's on your mind? Hey, Brianna. Uh, how are you? Um, just about Roe, I listened to the video. Um, in terms of what you just said, I think that's good. I think that he should be applauded that he does these interviews. I think that transparency is always good. And I think there's a lot of people that are very hard to get a hold of and get direct answers from. So even though sometimes his answers aren't always what I want to hear, um, I do think it's important to 
give him the respect that he is one person who always makes himself available to people who want to interview him, who support him. And so I do loud him for that. Um, and I did have um, a main reaction from the video, which you did mention at one point directly, but it felt like a lot of your conversation, the surrounding uh, point that it was really coming to was what constitutes an attack versus holding someone accountable. Mm. And that feels like a recurring subject whenever you guys would talk about different things that would make its way to a head. And that seems like what's the disagreement there. Um, and I don't know, my initial thought, I literally just finished it as this room was starting. Mm. But my initial thought to that is just a consequence of the, you know, the political environment in the US and how it's kind of vitriolic. People attack one another. So I don't know if we can't imagine what keeping someone accountable in a healthy way would look like or if that's where the problem comes. But um, I don't know. That was my reaction to the video that I watched. But, yeah, I don't know if you disagree or not. Yeah, it's interesting. On one level, I think that you're broadly right. Obviously, we live in, in an increasingly polarized country and we don't have that, you know, Walter Cronkite character that everybody tunes into and trusts on some level. I think that part of it is because we live in a divisive time. Part of it is because the diversity of media outlets that we have now is just going to yield more political silos. I think there's a lot of, you know, explanations. We have less community. People are more online. There's fewer bowling clubs and church groups and neighborhoods and those kinds of things. Okay, fine. But I also think that there is a specific kind of weaponization that's happening of the divisiveness where a lot of politicians have realized that because there is an appetite for more civility, they can simply say, you know, things like attacks are bad and I'm trying to bring people together and, you know, I'm trying to find bipartisan consensus. And that is an adequate response for a lot of people to efforts to hold folks substantively accountable. And I think it's worked for a long time. And it obviously works, you know, you have your disagreements with people, but I think prematurely folks like Jimmy Dore were called, you know, doing a violence and being attackers for calling out various members of the progressive party and have been proven right over time. Now, I think there is a line that could, that can be crossed and at, at homonyms and stuff that get thrown around in this space as well. So I'm not going to pretend that, pretend that doesn't exist, but you know, I try to style myself as someone who can't be accused of being, you know, unfair. And in fact, some people suggest that I am, you know, too credulous of the squad, or I see all these comments. They're like, why doesn't Brianna get it yet? She still has confidence and faith. No, I, I promise you, you're not thinking anything. I'm not thinking I'm the one who's literally been doing the show, but I, I, I feel like I have to present as in good faith and as credible as possible. So as I can't be hard with that kind of accusation. And so I can continue to have the ability to press for accountability without people being able to brush me off so easily as like doing an attack. Um, so yeah, it's, it's frustrating, but I do think it's not just that we live in a divisive time. I think that politicians have realized that they can weaponize people's distaste for that divisive time to avoid questions about accountability. Like they're purposefully blurring the line between accountability and an attack. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, well, I just had one other question that I wanted to pose to you uh, on a different topic, which is that just in light of hearing that Ryan and Emily are going to breaking points, 
I wanted to ask you a question, which is, I wonder what, well, what do you think is the future of Rising? Because it's interesting to me, I feel like Rising has been an incredibly influential and successful <clears throat> project in that they've launched, a, you know, they've introduced a number of people to this space, yourself included. I first heard of you through the early interviews on Rising with Crystal, mm. uh, yeah, with Crystal and Sagar few years ago um but i mean like to me they're the most influential since the young turks in the sense that like so many people from the young turks between jimmy and kyle and shank are still commonly talked about and play major roles it seems like rising has introduced the next generation of new names in this space um but there's this bad luck that the show seems to have with losing hosts um, and, you know, there's Crystal Sagar, there was the whole Kim fiasco, which is a whole other story. And now Ryan and Emily. So now it's turned into almost just a farming system in a way. But I, I, I wonder what you think. What do you think the future of Rising is and how do you think about it? And how are you how do you contextualize Ryan and Emily going to breaking points? No, I'm not really sure. You'd have to talk to them about why they made the decision to leave. From what I understand, it's substantively the same. There's their same show on Fridays that they're going to have. They're just doing it over there. So I don't know if it's, you know, that they got more money to go to breaking points. I don't know if it's they just think that's a better audience or they get more views or whatever. I do know that, you know, Rising has been dealing with an admitted, like YouTube has admitted this, uh, algorithm change that has really suppressed the viewership. So it could be as simple as that if they want more people to see their content. And so, you know, we're going over there. But my feeling is that I have appreciated the opportunity. They obviously reached out to me about co-hosting, and I've been kind of open on the show about my decision-making process and whether it was – I'm sorry. I'm just going to mute you, Dave, just because of the barking, but oh. I'm not going to, um, like, take you off or anything. Just unmute yourself when it's time to respond. Um. Uh, that, you know, I, I was weighing the cost benefits of, you know, being part of something that you obviously have less control over because you are part of a team with a host and, you know, other people involved. And, you know, it's a different thing than doing my own show. But I also really appreciate the opportunity to speak to an audience that is broader than my own, that is more conservative than my own, and to engage on a daily basis with a good faith co-host who I like as a person and who you know, challenges me to refine my own arguments and from whom I learn a lot about how different communities see world events. And, you know, I've been enjoying it a lot so far. And I also enjoyed hearing from Kim, even, you know, when she talked about things that I didn't know as much about and which I was skeptical of in the COVID space. I got to say that I've learned quite a bit during this time and my position on some things has evolved and deepened in ways that I find to be useful. And I also just want to say that I really appreciate the team over at Rising. There are a lot of producers and staff that have been there since, you know, the the Crystal and Sagar days and even the Crystal and Buck days, and they have worked really hard throughout. And these changes, I think, are hardest on them um, because it is their full-time job. And they have a lot fewer, you know, kind of options for mobility than the people who are on camera. So to the extent that it seems like a show that's changing a lot and that it's just a launching pad for various people. It's worth remembering that there are people who are permanent there and who are kind of unfairly caught up in, I think, a lot of this. And, you know, that's not something I necessarily appreciated before I started working on the show. 
Um, as for the future of Rising, I hope for the sake of everybody I've gotten to know while I'm there that it does continue. I think the audience is important. I think that while I really value Crystal and Saga and Breaking Points as well, there is something about being connected to the Hill and that broad kind of bipartisan, you know, mainstream audience that is an opportunity to lock into people who aren't, you know, on YouTube um, and people beyond the bread tube space. And I know that the Hill is um, putting the show on like the Roku app and getting on people's TVs. And I think the hope is that, you know, there is some utility to being, you know, um, yeah, at the end of the day, corporate news, but who's still willing to platform folks with ideologically diverse interests. And if they can succeed in getting that kind of broader mainstream media audience to appreciate and tune into the Hill, then I don't see how that does anything but, you know, help the left and the rising kind of populist core that is, you know, brought out by shows like Breaking Points and Rising. Oh, sorry. Let me unmute you. Oh, did you go away? I'm sorry, Dade. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I think it's a really interesting and difficult project that they do of trying to bring these different viewpoints together that oftentimes, you know, can be at quite odds with one another. <clears throat> and I think that that's a big reason for some of the problems that they've had maybe, but I do think that like what you said is true. The fact that it's the Hill brings a certain um, access and access to audience, but also access to people um, that you don't necessarily have once you go totally independent. And, um, I, you know, I also think that it has a way of introducing new people. Like it's less focused on the hosts. It's more focused on panels, I would say, like the mm -hmm. panel thing. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's very that's the major difference to me. Yeah. Um, but I will well, say, I, I, I actually have a, I, well, this is like a spoiler, uh, but next week you'll be hearing an episode uh, that I recorded with Crystal. And we were talking about this a little bit and we were both, you know, talking about the incentives that happen when you have a show that's, you know, with a host that you don't agree with. And, you know, what is the ethical line that you draw about covering certain subjects and, you know, being on YouTube and the push to get a certain level of clicks and how that's, I think much more of a perverse incentive than any, you know, corporate person at the Hill directing content or anything like that. Like people are competitive naturally and you feel a desire to get people to watch your content. And we were both saying how freeing it is to have a subscription model instead of relying on YouTube for money. Like I don't, YouTube is a th place where I put the show so that people can look if they want and to get a broader audience to come into the Patreon world. But honestly, I don't, you know, I don't think of it as like revenue generating. So I'm not that invested in how many views a given video gets. But if you are, you know, that's tough. It's a really tough lane to be in. And I wonder sometimes, like, I know that Breaking Point most relies on subscriptions for most of their revenue. The Hill doesn't. So it's interesting. It's got the corporate backing, but it also is more subject to, you know, what happens on, on YouTube. And I wonder if things would change or how the show would differ or what programming choices might differ if it did say, okay, we're just going to start you know, a subscriber model and have paywalled content is it will people, would people be willing to pay for paywall content from a corporate media hub like that? I don't know, but I think that's an, another like structural difference that it's worth thinking about as we evaluate how the trajectory of each of these kinds of shows. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I don't know, but thank you very much for taking my questions and uh, have a safe flight. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. All right. Uh, Johnny, <laughs> Johnny Gill. <laughs> LOL. What's on your mind? You with us, Johnny? All right, Johnny. You there? Oh, hey, there you go. What's on your mind? Oh, this yeah. I, uh, I crashed and reentered in at, at very quick speed, luckily. <laughs> mm. I'm glad the, you made uh, it the the uh, the uh, the app plays games. It works in mysterious ways, you know. <laughs> it does indeed, but they can't keep us apart, Johnny. What's on your mind? <laughs> At least not for the last minute or two, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, always always enjoy your uh, your podcasts, and uh, I actually just, in a coincidence of timing, just caught your um, student loan uh, radar. Are we calling a monologues radar? What do we call it on Rising? <laughs> they're, they're called radars on Rising. Uh, radars, yes. All right. Uh, yeah, just caught that, you know, uh, still, I do appreciate your carrying the flag for uh, Biden's student debt policy. Because, <laughs> I, you know, you just don't see anyone else coming out in favor of it. And you're a valuable voice to actually make the argument. Because it's just hard to be able to hand somebody a one-stop shopping, hey, here's the argument for student debt. And you've given like a number of those. Um, you know, a lot of yeah, people so, just aren't interested yeah. in chasing out alternative media. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say one stop shop because I do feel like I have to keep doing it. A part of me is like, oh, am I really going to do another student debt radar? But it's interesting that as the arguments against it evolve uh, and these weird kind of attacks come out about it, I do feel like there's so many facets of it to touch on. And I do think that all the radars cover different things. Like I haven't at all touched the kind of broader I think societal value in getting an education. I haven't talked at length at all about the religious kind of biblical spiritual basis of a jet of a debt jubilee. We're going to have to eventually cover this um, constitutional challenge to it, you know, and what the politics of that are going to be like. I mean, are amazing how there's resources to go litigate bitterness around other people's debt relief. Well, that's what the Republicans are doing. Ted Cruz is out here trying to find a, a, a claimant withstanding because they think they're not going to be able to find just any random tax. You know, you have to you have to have a an investment standing a, a, like a a connection to the case to bring a claim. It can't and just be oh, I'm a Biden taxpayer. Of course, now if they were pay for us, right? If Biden had actually tried to do the fiscally responsible thing and paid for it, you almost would would have made the standing argument stronger in a way, right? My taxes went up because I had to pay for this, you know, well, uh, well, no, actually, Starbucks I, barista. Standing, <laughs> Probably not, right? Yeah, actually, you know, standing law tends to not find I'm a taxpayer to be an excuse, point blank, period, or else then it yeah. would kind of undermine the notion of standing because everybody's a taxpayer. But, but if you got I, a Supreme Court a, that wants to find an excuse, <laughs> they kind of make stuff up, right? Well, it has to get to the Supreme Court first. So you have to find a lower court that is willing to accept the case and not throw the case out. But the, the point is that point. the New York, the Washington Post article today that came out, and I have at least one law professor who was interviewed there who's willing to come on the show and be interviewed about this next week. But the there, it, it's likely that they're going to find someone who is in college currently whose argument is going to be that the cost of tuition has gone up because of the perverse incentive of de debt cancellation and so that it hurts them as someone who won't get their loans canceled and is currently in college. I think that's tenuous because, how, you know, what college people... administrator is going to go say, yeah, straight up, we raise tuition because we figure people can suck it up and borrow more now. And they, you know, it's all funny money. They think they're going to get it 
you know, written off anyway. Well, yeah. No well, one's going to admit that. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the, the main issue is that people in college, most of them, unless you're just literally just started, are going to have debt as well that I believe will be canceled. So it's hard to say that you're not a beneficiary if you had debt that was literally canceled as a part of it. And also you're going to have to find a claimant who is willing to attract all of that ire. So even Ted Cruz, when describing the search for this person, is like, we're going to need someone with a lot of metal who is willing to be like the most maligned person in America because you took away a $44 million benefit from everybody. And there's also the political implications, right? So what happens if they're able to go ahead and enact this? Who has the timeline on that? Is there going to be an injunction that prevents them from actually doing this? Assuming they're able to follow through and the claimant wins, how are you going to claw that back? What does that and even look gonna, like administratively? And it's going to take years to wind through the court system, right? So are you going to like retroactively reinstate twenty grand ahead? What is it like half a half a trillion dollars worth? Yeah, we're going from like one point seven, one point oh three hundred billion. Yeah. Oh, I get you. Um, yeah, yeah that ahead. that would. <laughs> I can only imagine the anger that that would whip up if you reinstated debt that right. was written off. And, the, and, we're, and the precedent I mean, that sets for undoing any number of tax programs relief transfers is someone going to then challenge the ppp program i mean you can see the parade of horribles this opens up and that even a conservative court might not want to want to go down that path although per my radar today we do have this very reactionary activist court that has been paid you know billions of dollars have gone into to creating it and now they're there to set an agenda positive to corporate america's who knows what the limits are for them yeah, I, I tell you what, just to steer the conversation back to the uh, arguments you've you've kind of found yourself or the aspects you found yourself discussing. One um, underrated aspect that I think is an assumption built into someone like Robbie, who, uh, you know, I, I can't stand libertarian philosophy. And Robbie has all the like trappings of the, you know, rich elitist <laughs> that everyone loves to stereotypically hate. But he seems like he's actually a decent dude all when, you know, when, once you get past that kind of thing. Um, but anyway, uh, the underlying assumption from Robbie is like, and, and it's very, and it's a strain of libertarianism. I don't think he's unique in this respect is this sanctity of contracts idea. I mean, contracts get written up and, and changed all the time. I mean, it just, it just seems crazy that they're, they're willing to like, you know, this is the hill they're going to die on is like, you signed a contract. How dare you violate that? I mean, would they, would they be opposed to bankruptcy relief? for good student debt because you can't do that either yeah well it's interesting obviously you've seen a lot of conservatives and conservative democrats come up with all these alternative plans that they think would be better than cancellation and as i said on a radar i don't trust any of that because they've never shown any interest in pursuing any yeah of they're only doing that before. because of cancellation it's a reaction to cancellation not a replacement for so that being the case you know, it's irrelevant, but sure, follow through, put forward legislation and get them to, you know, vote on it if, if they want. Sorry, I was going to make a point earlier, but now I've, I've lost I've lost track of what your original question was. Oh, no, I, I, I was just saying, like, the 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 whole underlying assumption that contracts are sacred and, oh, you know, they're right. not just so, fungible things, you know. Right. So one of the things that many people have been complaining about, uh, many student debtors have been complaining about is the fact that they had um, their interest rates shifted over time. And they had, when they signed up for the loans, they never anticipated that the interest rates would be as high as they ultimately become. So this idea that there was like a fixed, um, a fixed agreement that they're reneging on when mm. really they have cha changing terms that have been changed in a way that is advantageous to the lender. 
um, is another part of the story that I don't think gets talked about enough. And there's also a massive power imbalance there. I mean, the government can change those terms at the government's discretion. I mean, who are you going to go negotiate with? You know what I mean? There's no there's no one to call and complain and, you know, angle for better terms. That's not you know, that's not on offer, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other the other thing is, is like the idea that these people actually got twenty thousand dollars in value you know what i mean like the college degree didn't really get any more value or it's hard to put a number on it but the college degree didn't really get any more valuable from one year to the next depending on how tuition moves i mean uh, you know where i went to school it now costs upwards of seventy thousand where it was thirty thousand i mean has the value gone up that much in 20 years since I since I what school I'm dating myself I know yeah well like, I mean so that's yeah, so right. arbitrary you know <laughs> like it's right, such an arbitrary that's... number <laughs> yeah but that's the by argument. the school to what that they they think they can take it honestly like they don't work like markets normally work in in many cases you want to raise the price so you can give off the appearance of value rather right. than you're well, you know reacting to market forces as a school you know right well that's the argument for people saying that you shouldn't cancel the debt, that you should deal with the rising cost of colleges, which of course can only be done by, you know, passing this brain plan that Ro Khanna said he signed on to, or was one of the co-introduced or whatever it was to make public colleges and universities tuition free and therefore create a competitive alternative for people who might otherwise pay these usurious rates for, um, private school, because frankly, the gap between private school tuition and public school tuition just isn't what it used to be, especially combined with, you know, scholarships and grants and stuff. So that for me personally, the difference wasn't enough to make me want to even consider. I mean, I I was in New York and Cornell had a state affiliated program that like was in the school of agriculture or something. So it would have been basically half off if I were a biology major at Cornell. And I was planning at the time to be a biology major in anyway, and I really considered it. But ultimately, it did make sense for me because the price wasn't that much less to go ahead and go to to Harvard. So I appreciate you calling in, uh, Johnny, and for but, uh, listening to these radars. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So my uh, my parting shot here would just be to you know consistently advocate for um staying on the hill because those radars are a nice neat short packaged version of a of an argument that just isn't out there in the media space nearly enough uh and also i would defend you bringing on rokana like we have to have an open channel to to congress even if we don't like what that open channel delivers us you still have to communicate you still have to keep those lines open if if you close that channel off then rokana has no idea what we in left media are thinking and refeeling and you know what i mean yeah, for sure. And I appreciate I appreciate you saying that, Johnny. And thank you for l- listening to Rising, sharing those videos, liking the content and stuff, because it really does help not just the message to get out, but the whole team over there, who I really want to just emphasize is are really, a lot of really great people behind the scene. Um, no work, Chris. I'm coming to you. But, oh, also I wanted to mention that um, to Johnny's point, when I was interviewing Ro, we actually only had 30 minutes, and then he had to go and do a Fox News hit. And he offered to come back after the Fox News hit. So there was actually a break that you didn't hear in the episode. And right before the break, I had asked, like, why don't progressives counter the, oh, but it doesn't get to the root of the problem argument by suggesting that people sign on for Bernie's bill to make colleges and uh, public colleges free. And when he came back from the break, he's like, yeah, I think that was a good point. And I tried it. <laughs> so to Johnny's point, yeah, sometimes it, it, it does it does feel a little bit like I'm just like, 
lecturing my point of view, but sometimes I do think it's useful to offer up nuggets of rhetorical, you know, uh, rejoinders and stuff that ultimately help, help these folks who do get access to mainstream media to make our arguments on mainstream media. So Chris, long time no see. How have you been? Good. I, you called me last week or called on me last week and I was on a phone call and I couldn't grab it. So I apologize. Thank oh, you. No, for calling. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad we connected. What's on your mind? Um, first off. Yeah. Obviously on, on student loans, you know, student loans is an issue. The big issue is the cost of, of college. You know, um, I don't know who all here listened to Useful Idiots last Friday with Noam Chomsky. Mm, that was such a good interview. He made it, it's very good. Um, even though on a few things, certainly pushing people towards voting for Biden right. over, and and on COVID issues, I've uh, parted ways with with Noam, but um, definitely good. But the point the point that he made that I'm trying to reiterate is that that the real fix isn't addressing student loans while that is an issue that we need to address. The issue is, is the cost of college, which has skyrocketed. And he made the point that when he went to college, he could work a small part-time job and afford to go to school and take no loans. And mm-hmm. he had said he had like a little grant as well or a scholarship or something. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, second thing is, you know, and this is my personal issue partly but you know walker bragman's such a uh uh i think dishonest actor in in this covid issue uh discussion and, and i've had some discussions with him directly on colin on jordan's show and i think also on uh on the lever as well you know I guess more my question to you is why did you why did you have a libertarian on so i didn't listen to it so Pardon some of the ignorance because I can't listen to Walker Bragman speak. I'm just I I can't do it. Um, but why was what was your decision making in having like a libertarian and uh, a uh, a Walker Bragman type on COVID versus like maybe two people from the left, somebody more like I don't know Jackson or Jimmy or somebody in that or Kim, who you have had on, but maybe not on the COVID issue um, as much, um, versus a libertarian who we all know what their position is across the board. We, I think we understand libertarianism. Every one of his answers was, I think, pretty was probably pretty obvious because I've seen what he says on Rising about the subject. What? Why not have well, two? Well, Chris, it's, it's difficult, you not having listened to the episode, but I had him on because I speak to him every single day and with okay. Kim every day about COVID, and he and Kim have the exact same position on COVID. Um, so I, I don't see why being a libertarian makes him a less good interlocutor than someone like, let's say, um, uh, Jackson no. Hinkle. When it comes to COVID, the point of the matter is that he found the – uh, lockdowns to be inappropriate in their scale. And well, I mean, to the extent that there were ever real lockdowns here, which there weren't, but you know what they I mean? Not, you know, restaurants and, and such being closed for as long as they were, wasn't well targeted to stopping the virus, that there was misinformation from the CDC, that, um, that there's a suppression of discussion around the negative side effects from COVID, including this most recent study that shows that men under 40 have as big an incidence of my, myocardial uh, myocarditis as uh, from the vaccine as they do from getting COVID. 
you know, all of those kinds of things. Robbie makes those arguments in tandem with Kim. So if there's a, like a stylistic reason that you prefer Max or you think that Max would have made better arguments, I mean, that's completely fair. But I had on the person that I talked to the most about COVID and who I know ha- takes that position most gotcha. strongly. And I taught, had the person on the other side who makes the opposite position most, most strongly in my life on my timeline every day. That's, that's a fair enough. That's a fair enough answer. Uh, one other thing uh, I was listening to uh, a Nick revolutionary Nick from RBN revolutionary discourse uh, uh, call in two days, I think on Thursday and Sabby came in and, and she you know, there was a lot of talk about personalities on the left and blah, blah, blah. I don't know if you caught this episode by chance or, or not. But, you know, Sabi says, and not to be like too dramatic, but I'm just curious if there's a reason. Sabi says you won't have her on. And I do notice that you've had most of RBN on and that you haven't spoken with Sabi before. Is there a reason for that? And are you open to speaking with Sabi of, hmm. about Uh, I certainly have no reason not to have Sabi on. I think that making those kind of comments isn't super helpful, (laughs) you know, um, you know, trying to smear someone as intentionally having an issue with you. I don't think it's super helpful, but of course there's no reason. I, in fact, (laughs) as ironic as I was actually planning something, um, I was been trying to figure out how to get this co-ed, um, there were two episodes I've been trying to plan. The crystal episode was actually supposed to be a panel with a bunch of folks, talking about um, kind of a pure horse race about 2024. And because of scheduling, I ended up just going ahead and booking Crystal. But I wanted Sabi and Katie for that. And uh, have thought about her having her on for an FBI panel as well. But I ended up getting those two scholars. And sometimes I think, um, you know, it's a delicate mix trying to get, you know, people in the room that are going to have good energy and feel like they're having the same like type of conversation so, you know, but I mean, it's it's frustrating to it's frustrating to have people, you know. I mean, they they went at Jackson Hinkle pretty hard on that Colin and they had Jackson on yesterday and had a two and a half hour chat with him. Yeah, I saw so some I, of that. I don't think making any pointed making any points is is anything totally personal or that anybody should take totally personal. It's a it's you know it is what it is i'd love to see you uh have a talk with sabby or or vice versa on either person's platform i think both of you are great obviously i'm here in your space a lot and and support you a lot so um i think that's the only reason i asked the question okie doke yeah i appreciate you calling in chris thanks Bree. okay uh keep the faith bells how you doing hey Bree. how do i sound you sound great. What's on your mind? Awesome. Um, just a quick point on Rokana. Um, I just want to say that I think this is like the third time you've had him on now. And um, I think that's pretty cool. I think you're like, I, I like, I appreciate the trend of him, like willing to come back like over and over again. Um, and I wish that I could say the same about like any other squad member. Um, and I think at this point for me, um, I, I think that because they're so like averse to coming on to like lefty media, um, I just, I'm just going to like assume that 
his opinions are also and like his sort of like viewpoint on how things are working in Congress is also their opinions because I can't like I'm I like I can't be in their heads right like mm-hmm. I wish they would come on and sort of explain their perspective and talk about bills they're working on or whatever just so I can like know just so there's some transparency so I I'm assuming that some of them watch this call in and listen to it so I'm just here. I'm letting y'all know that if you want to be associated with a self-identified capitalist, when y'all be talking about y'all are from DSA and socialists and all this stuff, that's uh, that's on you now. Yeah, it's it's tough because I there's a there's a an extent to which I think it's fair to reserve judgment about people until they have an opportunity to. Um, you know, speak up to, to really, uh, you know, articulate what their views actually are. So, you know, like I said, around force the vote, okay, maybe there's something I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know all the inner workings of Congress or what deals are being struck. So I might not go quite as hard as some other folks in the early days post force of vote about whether or not someone's a fraud or not. But if you tell me that you're saving it up for $15 minimum wage, and then you don't do anything around the $15 minimum wage, and then it, 18 months goes by at a certain point. Yeah, I do feel like it's more fair to go ahead and say, I think that I think that they are not what we're looking for. That they are, they are not the revolutionary figure you're looking for, you know, start, start. <laughs> you know, so I, I, and again, like at any time there's a rebuttable pre- presumption, right? I'm more than happy. I, I, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love for any of them to come on the show tomorrow and say, you know, you've been judging us really harshly, but here's what's really happened. Nancy Pelosi had my cousin in a cage with a red dot on her forehead and said, if I said anything, she was going to blow her brains out. Like, I'm, I'm totally open to that. I'm yeah, totally me too. I'm totally open to that. But I'm not going to sit here and there's – there's a limited amount of time you can sit here and be boo-boo the fool and act like everything is happening in good faith, especially when, to your point, yeah, Ro Khanna is coming here and submitting to the questions – and he manages to survive yeah. and he doesn't crumble and die, you know? Right, and, exactly. And we have much more alignment probably with someone like Cory Bush or uh, Rashida Tlaib. So that makes it more disappointing that they won't submit to it. Although to Rashida's, you know, I have not sent an interview request to Rashida Tlaib's office, I should say. I did at one point send a request to Cory Bush and it was rejected. And I've sent a couple to ASC and they've been rejected. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm totally on the same page. I'm just, uh, I'm tired of trying to look through the crystal ball and sort of glean with the future in some way. You know what I mean? It's just, it's frustrating. Yeah. Just, but, just, um, also, also, I know, I don't want to give Ro, like, I know that there's a danger that we will end up giving Ro too much credit just for showing up. And I'm sensitive to that. But I, I do want to say, like, there is something... There is something to the cathartic value of at least being able to say, it's like a confessional on, for me <laughs> on some level, just be able to say, like, this is why we're upset. And even though I know that nothing's going to change, <laughs> like nothing's going to come by it, I do think it helps one to crystallize what the problems are for outsiders who think we're just complaining a lot about nothing to actually hear the non responses or the inadequate responses from them. But also just, I want to just confess for myself it it feels cathartic to be able to get some stuff off of my chest and to say my piece and to feel like I'm being <laughs> being heard on some level yeah, and not no, just shouting to the void. 
I totally sympathize. Um, yeah, it's you just like you're getting stonewalled and it sucks. <laughs> and it's not even like you're being rude. Honestly, you handle these interviews like incredibly politely. You're not like screaming down his throat or anything, which I think I think it could get messy in some of these other media outlets, honestly. Uh, like your podcast is probably the best place for them to go to like if if they were going to reach out to somebody. But um yeah. Anyway, um, I did. I want to have a fun point in here today. Um, okay. So I've been thinking, like, because we you were talking about like the future of the podcast, um, like a few weeks ago and whatnot. And uh, it, this is something that I've been thinking about, but I haven't like. It, it's taken me a little while to like really formulate like exactly how I feel about it, um, and I think you should have like a new co-host on bad faith. Um, and I, and I just want to like, I want to approach this from like a imaginative, like, ima- like imagining a better world sort of viewpoint. Like just imagine you could get whoever you wanted. You had the money to do whatever you wanted, like, etc. cetera. So um, I think you should have a new co-host and I, OG bad faith listeners will remember that you used to have a co-host um, and fuck him for ruining the dynamic you guys had, which was really cool. And I think what made it so compelling back then, at least for me, was that not only were you guys like really like hashing out, um, like you were, you were, I mean, you were doing what you're doing now. It's like you were really trying to genuinely get to the bottom of stuff and like figure out what we do going forward and all this other stuff. But I think another part of it too that was really like interesting was that like you two like you both said multiple times that like you didn't know each other before the podcast and so there was this whole like i think for me personally and i wouldn't be surprised if this was the same for a lot of other people was that it was really cool seeing two lefty people that like share politics that live in like very different places like being able to come together like agree on stuff and then like genuinely get to know each other better because like lefties in general, we all feel so isolated because everybody's politics suck except for the 1% of us that are here in America. Um, So I don't know. That was really cool. So I was thinking like, okay, who could fill that void, right? Someone that like shares your politics um, and, and could like help you do the stuff that you do now, but also someone that you don't really like know super well. And you would like get to know them through the podcast and whatnot. So I'm going to throw some suggestions out there. um, And, you know, chat chime in with who you think would be cool, but okay. So one like Shahid Buttar, I think would be really interesting. Both of you are like super duper educated and like really articulate. And I, I just, the the times that he has been on, I felt like there was there was good like talking chemistry between you two, and I I think you'd be able to like work through stuff really eloquently. I I think it'd be a really good listen. Um, two, um, Jamie from Old Majority Report, the like only <laughs> the commie who would always get shouted down on that show. <laughs> um, I know she's doing sort of like she's a big sci fi nerd. Um, yeah, and I, I, I don't know. I think it would just be really, really fun. And three, 
Um, again, imagining a whole, I, I, I think this is totally out in left field. I don't think it would ever happen, but I think it'd be a lot of fun is if you got like someone from the chat, like Rika or Sylvester <laughs> or both of them, I think that that'd be a lot of fun too. Yeah. I mean, I, I do miss being able to talk about stuff kind of on the fly in the way that's difficult with guests who I think expect you to be prepared and a bit more professional. Not all guests, obviously, if Katie comes on or Leslie or T or something, it's a more casual environment. But the pressure to have a guest book every week, twice a week, it makes it a very, it's a, it's a much more stressful process than it was before. You know, not being able to kind of look things up on the sly, you, know, you can't really do that if it's Rokana sitting there. If it's, you know, just a right. co-host, you can kind of press pause and do your Google and cut around those kinds of things. And, you know, it's a different kind of a show. And I, I miss, I miss that dynamic as much as anybody who listens. And, you know, I, I think I've mentioned on here that I've talked to Katie Halper about, you know, we were both, you know, as I contemplate how long I'm going to stay with the Hill and, you know, the division of my time and responsibilities. And she's contemplating other longer term projects. We were both wondered if it would made sense for us to drop one of our more time-consuming obligations and do a show with each other because it wouldn't require as much planning. It wouldn't require all the interviewing and booking of guests. We have a natural simpatico. And so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking along the lines that you're thinking, but don't have any um, strong plans to make any changes yet because, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to stay with the Hill. I will say, I because I've gotten to know them and I do feel a little bit of like weird... You know, like I, 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 I've, I've affection for the staff when because they've had to endure the, these transitions. It makes me want to make a longer term commitment to the hill. I know that's just like an emotional response. <laughs> it's not like mm-hmm. rational, but it makes me want to make a longer term <laughs> commitment because you know you guys don't see the the team, but the team is the one that has to deal with if there's a dip. Everyone in the comments being like, "Bring back Kim." I, you know, I hate you guys. I mean, that's fine. I don't care. I have my own spaces, but it's the team that ends up suffering the slings and arrows of people who withdraw their support and stuff like that. Not that anybody should watch a show just because, like, there's nice people producing it or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, I, I see that, and I feel that. And so, I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. And I appreciate all of your suggestions. I really do. Yeah, I don't want to – I don't want to – what I didn't want to do coming in with this like suggestion thing is like being like, I wanted to have fun with it. Right. Like I, I know that money's a thing you, cause you'd have to hire this person and like, you know, there'd have, there'd be like availability problems, like blah, blah, blah. I just, I just like, I was sort of like trying to get into that. Okay. But like, what if that like Star Trek mindset of like, okay, but what would a really cool world look like? <laughs> And I don't know. Those were the, some of the names that came to mind. Can we get Giannis Varoufakis if we're, we're really thinking big picture? If we're really doing blue sky? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. The only thing I'd worry about is, like, it the whole podcast getting, like, too brainy. Because <laughs> I, <laughs> like, too intellectual, you know what I mean? Because uh, he's, like, super smart. And if you're, y'all are... Y'all are vibing, but you're throwing around hella big words. And I'm like, uh, I'm really trying to keep up with you guys, but I'm struggling. Sure so not, not Norm Finkelstein either? Not, not Norm? No. <laughs> oh, God, no. Please well, stop. Well, there's Norm. also, you know, I used, to have, I used to have a show, obviously, with my best friend, Swody, back in the day. And he's done, I think, 
one, mm-hmm. maybe two episodes here on Bad Faith. And I keep trying to convince him to at least, you know, pit, pit, pinch hit, pitch hit, what's the expression? For me on occasion. And now that he has, like, he was trying to be a writer for years and now he's gone back to, you know, nine to five and he feels like he doesn't want to jeopardize his, his quote unquote real job. But mm-hmm. I, you know, that is I mean, <laughs> it's always going to be my dream guest to be able to sit down with my best friend twice a week and just jibber jabber and to know and to have that. I, I hear what you're saying about getting to know someone on camera, but I think there's also a certain value to people who have a relationship and inside jokes. Sure. Are, touchstones and to be able to anticipate yeah. reactions to certain kinds of events and what what news items are actually going to generate conversation between the two of them so that's part of what appeals right. to me about katie as well but it's you know it's an interesting thought experiment and i appreciate you calling in bells yeah of course I, right. i'll miss you at summer school this weekend the essay summer school <laughs> wait well, oh yeah well i'll be i'll be in <laughs> cleveland it's my stepfather's birthday and you know yeah my brother's you. coming home um he hasn't seen that the new Cleveland house yet. He's, he lives in LA, so he's the last one to see it. So I'm excited to have the whole family under one roof for the first time in a really long time in a in a brand new room. Don't, don't give them COVID since they've all been so lucky. <laughs> well, my, so my little brother was the first one to get it. He's the only one who actually. Oh. So he was out there, you know, these young kids out on the streets. He was out there. He got it like he got it like March 2020. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, like he was—he got it like immediately. Uh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the rest of them, the rest of them are good, and we're trying to keep it that way. So thanks for calling in, Bells. Yeah, yeah. Have a good one. You too. All right, Linda, what's on your mind? Can you unmute yourself? Hey, Bree. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So it's a. a one or two days ago was the one month anniversary of Beyonce's Renaissance. I feel like I can't come on this call and not speak about how much of an excellent project that is. So if anyone hasn't gotten a chance to listen, please do so. Sorry, what what Renaissance? I'm sorry, I missed it. Oh, uh, Beyonce's new album, Renaissance. Oh, Beyonce's Renaissance. <laughs> I'm like, what is this historical thing that happened? No, it's Beyonce's Renaissance. <laughs> no, it happened a month ago. It's not historical. <laughs> I mean, it is. It is historical because it's just... It's a it's a excellent body of work. She she really outdid herself on that one. Yeah. Um, but I I so as keeping with Bells' like um, dream host thing. So I came uh, to Bad Faith when it was just you, and so I can't even imagine a world where you have a co-host. And I think I like kind of went back. I think I've seen a couple of the older episodes, and I definitely prefer it just being you. But if I would have to have had a dream get a dream co-host for you, um, it would be um, another American YouTuber. Her name is Julesy. Um, she was, I mean, she was a she was an Elizabeth Warren supporter in 2020. So I don't know how <laughs> how well the two of you would do together. But I think on on other things, I don't think your politics are 100 percent aligned. But I, I think that, that would be it's J O E. L Z Y. Okay, I was not at all spelling it like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my spelling is also, you know, a bit weird. J L E L Z I. Yeah, her name is Julesy. Like, if you if you put that on YouTube or Instagram, she should be the person who comes up because I don't I don't know anyone else who has that same name. J O E L Z I. Oh, it could be J O U L E. Z-Y? 
Somewhere, somewhere along those lines. I'll, oh, I'll okay. Look. I got you. I got you. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, oh, I've okay. seen this before. I've seen this person. Let me let me subscribe and I'll follow up later. I'll take a look. Yeah, she's a, I mean, she's a kind of like a history, pop culture type person. She used to do uh, like a lot of, um, you know, polit- political stuff, but I think she kind of wanted to, to move on. Oh, I see. She's had, my, um, she's had uh, Josie Duffy on. Uh, we went to law school together. She has one of those Pod Safe podcasts now. She does a lot of, she's a public defender, does a lot of good work on criminal justice issues. I should have Josie on the uh-huh. podcast. Why haven't I had Josie on the podcast? Sorry, go ahead. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I'll take a listen. But is that why you called in, or is, is everybody now caught up in this fantasy? World? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I just wanted to, to to mention that. But I think really I wanted to kind of because um, I always like coming onto the podcast to give sort of like a, a South African perspective on stuff that you guys are talking about. And we so we also had um, like a huge student debt, um, a free higher education um, conversation. In like 2015, I think one of the, not one of the, but definitely the biggest student protest in South Africa post-apartheid was um, the 2015-2016 protests for free higher education. Mm. And, and I mean, unfortunately, we didn't get that. But what we did get was uh, kind of um, while the government would fund your um, university education if you meet certain requirements. So we also have a, um, a household income threshold. Mm. Um, ours is 350,000 rand um, combined household income. So what's anyone who like? makes... What's that approximately in dollars? Um, I can do that. I can convert it on the internet. Yeah, so if you just Google rands to dollars... 350,000? Um, rands. Mm-hmm. South African rands. Yeah. Uh, that's about 20000 a little over $20,000. Okay. Yeah, so that's the combined household income. But I think the... And so that was what was announced in 27, at the end of 2017. But then what you had... So before then, we had a loan system, whereas the... I think the 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 household income requirement was a lot lower. It was, I think, 125,000 rand. But if you, may, if you had a household income above, I mean, below 125,000 rand, the government would give you a loan, which is similar to what you guys have to go to school. Mm-hmm. So at the end of 2017, you literally had overnight people who, had gra- who were going to graduate at the end of that year, graduating with, you know, similar to you guys, someone who's, who went to law school, sorry, who went to medical school, would graduate with um uh, with debt of a five with with debt of five hundred thousand rand, someone who had done um, an accounting degree similar to one I did would gra- would graduate with a with debt of about four hundred thousand rand because of mm-hmm. how ridiculously expensive it is to to go to university. You had literally that year people who graduate that year graduating with mountains of debt, and then the people who would graduate the following year were going to graduate with zero debts, provided that you meet those, those thresholds. Mm-hmm. And we also had the, the same conversation of people who were saying, you know, it's not fair that I get to graduate with this much debt and people who are graduating next year um, are basically, quote unquote, going to have their entire loans forgiven, even though they had also, t- because what they did was that they said, yes, when you went to school, you took out a loan scheme, but for people who are going to graduate after this announcement, 
we are going to forgive all of those loans. And f- fortunately, I was one of those people where I went to university, uh, took out the loan scheme. But then because I graduated after the announcement, I didn't graduate with any debt. Mm-hmm. And I literally had missed it by a year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was mm-hmm. the craziest thing. And you also then had people who were still owing, um, who were worst, have, are still to this day expected to pay back the debt. My dad is one of the people who still has student debt. Um, and he went to university like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's very surprising to me that just because the government said, okay, from 2017 onwards, anyone who, who meets a certain um, household income threshold will get to go to school for free, but then they're still aggressively trying to collect every single cent of the right. loans that were given to people prior to, prior to the 2017 announcement. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean... Uh... Is it, did it ever taper off? Did people ever kind of come to terms with it? Or do you think that there so, are simmering resentments that are going to have long-term political consequences? That, that's actually the point that I wanted to get to, where after the announcement, maybe for a week, because also, so we have, um, we have our sort of like summer period between um, like October up until March and December, the December period is like our like, you know, festival celebration, people are, schools are closed, most people are closed from work. So December is usually like a very celebratory period in South Africa, right? Mm. And so, you know, no, no, no one likes to be bothered about, you know, deep conversations and highly political stuff in December. We, like, everyone's just vibing, everyone's just having a great time in December. (laughs) Yeah, good weather, exactly. So the interesting thing was that the, um, our former president, made the announcement in like the first week of December and literally the following week of December that's when like you know things things kick off so we literally had maybe two three days worth of conversation of people saying you know it's not fair because I had to pay off my loans it's not fair because I'm graduating with debt there was a little bit of conversation and then literally immediately um, after that well certainly when the new year came about there was absolutely no conversation about it even post um um, that 2017 announcement, I mean, 2018 came and went, 2019 came and went, and no one really spoke about it, even though there are still thousands and thousands and thousands of people who still owe and are still required to make payments. And actually, when we when we had the 2015-2016 protests, part of the list of demands that we that we had as students was the forgiveness of historical debt. Mm. And what we experienced was that we were sort of pacified with this small, small, small concession of you'll find you'll get to go to school for free if you know all of these points. Mm-hmm. And because and I think because people felt like we had that small win Mm-hmm. That then, you know, n- no one fought to increase the threshold because also we, we had had an issue with um, a group of people we called the missing middle. So those are people who are too poor to get government funding, but too rich to actually afford university education. Mm-hmm. And so we, we didn't want to leave the missing middle out when we had made those demands. So we um, w- part of our demands was the increasing of the threshold from 125,000 rand to 650,000 rand. But obviously the, the concession then became... 350,000 rand. But even that 350,000 rand does leave out, 
you know, huge contingent of people. I mean, um, people have to do all sorts of things like saying, my, my dad is not in my life so that, yeah. you know, you, you only put forward your mom's income so that you at least fall below the 350,000. And, um, you know, people just have to do like all kinds of weird things just so that they have to, just so that they make sure that they, that they're below the 350,000. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have, for instance, one child who's in university and you have two who are in high school, that becomes incredibly difficult for a family to be able to fund that, that, that child's university um, um, education. But I think that that's kind of what I wanted to say, that the, the governments are able to do that thing where they give you one small thing and tell you to shut up. Yeah. And then people just forget about all the other list of demands um, yeah. that, that had been made in tandem with that one thing that you were actually doing. Yeah, well, well, that's why I thought it was important to, you know, ask Ro Khanna about, one, the specific promises that Joe Biden still has not followed through on with respect to canceling all the debt for public university graduates and HBCU graduates. And also just to ask him, like, well, okay, well, now what are the progressives are going to, what are they going to push for? Are they going to keep yeah. talking about free public colleges and university? And he, his answer was interesting. He was kind of like, he was proud of being a co-sponsor of the bill. And he was like, well, that's my bill. And I was like, great. Are you going to bring it up? <laughs> and, and it's funny because yeah. I, don't, I don't, you know, it didn't feel to me like he had an, any real um, objection to bringing it up. But it does mm-hmm. feel to me like there just really aren't those strategy conversations being had on the Hill. Like it, it almost felt like a novel idea. Like, oh, yeah, I guess I should kind of bring that up as a rejoinder. That, that, that sounds like a good idea. That sounds like a good idea. You know, it's just like nice that like people are, you know, suggestible and are happy to take the advice, but also there's something really yeah. dispiriting about the idea that no one's driving the ship. Who's yeah. the comms I mean, director? <laughs> we, had a, yeah. we, had, we had a similar thing where, so, because, um, uh, you, you know, when you have these sort of like big protests and big student movements, there are those couple of faces that, you know, pop up at the top and become de facto leaders of the, of the movement. We had, a, we had, I think, four or five of those kind of people. And, well, the process happened in around 2016, 2015, 2016. And then in 2019, um, we had a general, well, what you guys call a general election. Um, and those four people who were the leaders of the student movement then went to our parliament, which is your equivalent of Congress. Mm-hmm. And th- there was an expectation that, because those people prior to the student protests were relatively unknown, were really just nobodies. They were only known within their own individual student campuses. And because of the national profile that the student protests gave them, they were then able to make it to parliament. Mm. So there was an understanding that when they get there, they are going to further push Mm. the government towards the demands of students. If I tell you, (laughs) if I tell you... They have not written a single piece of legislation. They have not pushed a single debate. They have not pushed for a single vote. They've done absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, one of those people, she chairs the Higher Education Portfolio Committee, which is, um, um, I, I, I forgot what you guys call those those committees, but she, she, she doesn't only sit on the committee, she chairs it. Like, it's, it's ridiculous to me <laughs> that this person would chair the higher education committee yeah. and say, absolutely, because I, um, um, a couple of months ago, wrote an article about what she has done in, since she's been in, in parliament and specifically her, her activities around the, the higher education portfolio committee. And I went on the parliamentary website, literally searched 
like had to read through um, portfolio documents, me uh, meetings of minutes, watch meeting videos. There hasn't even been a, a whiff of someone even trying to get any sort of accountability about, you know, raising the, the household income amount. At least have her push for research to be done about, you know, are we actually covering as many people as we can with the 350,000 rent household income? She's literally been doing absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, she bought a house a couple of days ago, something that her peers absolutely cannot do with the, with the amount that they own, regardless of the fact that they got the same education as she did. Yeah. You know, but, but the yeah. Same so old story. See, that's, that's yeah. why, you know, people are like, you're being too aggressive with the squad. We could not be aggressive enough. We yeah. like, we need to start thinking. I mean, people are already thinking about this and kudos to all the folks over at RBN and, you know, Nick and CJ and Sabby and all of them for really keeping folks' feet to the fire on these issues. But primary challengers of the, even the squad members in the progressives, it's got to happen. Something's mm. got to make these people pay attention. It's ridiculous. It's ri it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. I I I, I don't know. I maybe the next time Ro comes on, I'll ask him this. Do you guys need help? Like, are you <laughs> are you having staffing issues? Like, do you need people to be doing like press coordination or messaging strategy? Because I'll tell mm. you, I've mentioned on this podcast before that one of the squad members that I did have an opportunity to talk to at one point. We disagreed about force the vote in our conversation. It seemed like they were mostly, all they really knew was that they felt like it was an attack on AOC that felt unfair to them. But then they asked me what I, you know, what was next? Like, what did I think the next issue was going to be so they didn't get caught off guard? And I was like, you're asking me what strategically the left should do next mm -hmm. in the Biden era? I mean, this was like, <laughs> this was like March of 2021 or something. Yeah maybe like February of 20, it was like right after the inauguration. I was like, seriously? So I, a part of me is like, there's no excuse and I'm angry, but a part of me is like, do you just need support? Because what's need happening? <laughs> do you need help? Like what, what is happening? I don't know, man. Look, I really appreciate your example that, you know, it's, it's reassuring. It's disappointing, but it's obviously reassuring to know that it's not just us that screwed and that we're going to have to figure out some strategies as a global community to get past this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we have to work through the, 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 the same issues as well to say, I mean, how do you even, you know, try to garner any kind of accountability from these people? Because I think the other thing that they did, I mean, they did this whole big thing about how, you know, we're young. I think they all, well, two of them are 28. One of them, I think two of them are 30. So they were like, you know, we're young. We're part of the, you know, cool kids. We're on social media. We are, you know, we're responding to you guys. We're attentive to the youth. I mean, the one, um, the, the one that I said, she, she's the chairperson of the Higher Education Portfolio Committee. She's basically non-existent on social media. She, mm -hmm. she'll, post, she'll post her, um, like, official activities, but, like, does absolutely no media engagement. Like, if, I, if I'm saying no media engagement, I mean she does no media engagement. Mm -hmm. Like, the only place where you'll see her is if um, her, her oversight committee is doing a site visit at a university, in which case it's also they just meet with university management. There's a, there's a photo op and everyone goes home. Um, the, one, the one woman, she's, um, she sits on the economic portfolio for a province, which is kind of your equivalent of a state, but we have provinces. She's, she chairs the portfolio committee um, for, for economics in the province that I live in. Same thing. She only does official engagements, does absolutely no media. Even if it is media, it's very pointed. It's with, um, it's 
most likely an Instagram live with um, someone who's very sympathetic to them, who's absolutely going to ask no questions at all themselves from any engagement about the work that they do any criticisms nothing which i mean there there is a a contingent of um kind of uh quote-unquote bullying that bullying they get from the internet so they use it as kind of a oh no you know there's 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 three bot accounts that are calling me the b-word on twitter so i'm just not going to engage with anyone point blank well that's kind of what happened with the squad around the protest i think that somebody said that there was like security concerns about showing up to one of these Medicare for all protests or something like that, which, you know, I do think that there are security concerns, but there are things that they get security for and go to despite those (laughs) those concerns. And there's things that they skip, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I really appreciate that insight, Linda. Thank you. And I hope you call in again. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Keep the faith. Hey, Day. Que pasa? Oh, okay. Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? Hello? Yeah, I can oh. hear you. What's, what's on your mind? It's good to hear. From Likewise. You. Um, it's funny because you guys actually hit on my original topic at the end about the people and like the idea that I genuinely do believe that these people don't understand how to leverage media to their advantage the way that people on the right do. Um, so I guess I can just get to the point. Like, do you know how they select their communications people or if they have any? Cause like, I remember last week you discussed about Mondale Jones not doing any press during his mm-hmm. campaign run. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like, t- even Tucker Carlson allegedly for legal allegedly has, you know, his staff searching, you know, far right wing chat rooms mm-hmm. or conversations to know what they're talking about. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. we have the bread tube space so that they can know what the left is animated about. Mm-hmm. And so they have better talking points, but they're not doing that. So I was like, do you even know how they go about that? Look, it's crazy. I am not a congressperson, and I listen to Pod Save America. I listen to RBN. I listen to Savvy Sabs. I listen to Kate. Like, I listen to the Vanguard guys. Like, I check in to see at different, like, kind of levels of lefty media and different sections of the left to see what they're talking about. One, because I want to make sure that I'm not missing something. Like, I'm not infallible. I want to hear what all the arguments are, even if it's, you know, I don't necessarily agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also, it's like, how how on earth can you, like, it's self-protective. You have to kind of know where the moment are, is, what, what the energy is like. Like, I'm not, like, on the street. Like, I'm not, like, interacting with people outside of my stupid little apartment every day. Like, <laughs> how can you get a sense of what, where people are and even know what direction you should point in if you're not engaging in these different media spheres. You know, I'll, I'll listen to Ben Shapiro. I'll, I'll, I'll listen, I listen to Russell Ooh. Brand. I listen to, you know, I, I watch at least one Tucker Carlson radar every week. You know, Ooh. you, you gotta know. Yeah. It, it just seems like there's no appetite for, discussing or learning i'm like you're going into these conversations with people that we know are antithetical to your own ideology blind you don't have any talking points prepared you don't have any idea of what the left is suggesting so you're just listening to people who we're hoping has share some ideology but it just sounds like everyone's like well here they said we can get a crumb of the cookie so i think we should go in there and ask for a whole chocolate chip in the cookie and it's like no you could ask for the cookie and this is how um, cause I don't know. I had a conversation with case study QB on his mm-hmm. show Monday and we were having a conversation about, 
oh, the UPS thing with air condition, I think, or it was mm. student debt, something, it was something like a couple topics and there were different people on the panel. And something that became apparent to me was that I feel like political imagination is so low. Like mm -hmm. no one is saying anything close to JFK's like, let's go to the moon. Mm -hmm. Politicians aren't willing to look, they're not willing to like look at our material conditions and articulate a better world that has not been born yet. Like, I'm like, instead of talking about America's problems, why don't we talk about America's possibilities? And even with Bernie, like I think Bernie was the closest person to doing that in recent times, you know, they had a close shot. But even him, I think about it sometimes and I'm like, well, Bernie is really just getting us caught up to the rest of the world mm -hmm. a lot of times. It's not, he's not asking for something grandiose and over the top. And I don't know, is that something that you find when interacting with a lot of these people in that space? Cause you were closer to like, you know, the official world that they just don't think that way. They just think, well, what's the bare minimum we can get done? My look, I, I'm not saying this at all because I am, um, trying to, you know, make a dig at anybody. I know that everyone was trying their best and resources are limited and campaigns move quickly. And I wasn't privy to every staffing decision. And I know that at one point Bernie really didn't want to add staff. And so even though the people were really overburdened and overtaxed and the, you know, resources weren't exactly where they needed to be that huge caveat out there. I was honestly very surprised about the lack of foresight and planning mm. that went into comms on a major presidential political campaign. Interesting. When I, when I was hired, my expectation was, I, you know, I, you know, I knew myself. I was like, I've never worked in politics. I've never worked on a campaign. Okay. I am a journalist who's only been a journalist for 10 months. And before that, I was a lawyer who had nothing to do with any of this. <laughs> so my expectation was everybody knew, knows who I am, that if they think that I can do this job, then they're definitely going to train me, make sure that I'm prepared they are going to be interested in having conversations with me about messaging direction and how we should, you know, launch various policies and how we should respond to various news events and uh, attacks from various quarters of the other, you know, um, candidates and all that stuff. None of that happened. Wow. None of that was true. I showed up. I mean, again, I don't know how much this is Bernie land versus how campaigns always are. I have no idea. But part of why I have some sympathy for Karine uh, Jean-Pierre is that I wonder if they've similarly thrown her to the wolves. Now, Ooh. she should prepare herself so she doesn't look a fool on the national stage. Like, I realized very quickly, like, oh, if I don't want to sound like an idiot, I have to just personally study these policies and I got to get my little notebook together and I have to quiz myself and just because no one's no one's helping me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there was none of that. And. In fact, I found that at, that at a certain point there were comms meetings that were happening with a subset of like comms people that I was excluded from. And to the extent that there were messaging meetings, I was not being invited to them. Uh, at no point was there any kind of strategy meeting that I was ever a part of in terms wow. of, you know, I would watch the debates. We would all watch the debates. I would have notes and thoughts and feelings about questions that were answered effectively, better ways to answer them, things that worked from the Fox News town hall that he should say again. You know, I would have thoughts. You know, I would watch other guests. Like I remember seeing Michael Moore do a hit once. I was at the office late, like doing podcast edits, and I w came on TV. I watched it, and he was very effective. And I thought, oh, here's three things that Bernie should try saying because it seemed to land really well in this mm -hmm. hostile environment. None of that. There was none of that kind of feedback. Everything that the comms department was focused on, from my perspective, was responsive, putting out fires, reacting to things that other people did. None of it was affirmative. 
None of it. Ever. Ever. That's ever, ever. a democratic thing. Like, I don't, Democrat Party type thing. I don't understand that. Yeah. Well, I think that part of it is that people feel overwhelmed. They're under attack. All of those kinds of things. And I know that people were trying their best. I don't, you know, no one was trying to, like, self-sabotage yeah. or anything. But it was almost like they didn't see the value in going on the affirmative in the way that Republicans do. So imagine this world. There's a world where, Demo- where Republicans are owning this idea of being the free speech party. Mm-hmm. Democrats think that they can't really compete because they don't want to be in a world where they're saying things like, oh, I actually love it when people are anti-trans on Twitter. Like, okay, I understand that Democrats don't really know how to negotiate that. But what if you went in a completely different direction and said, okay, Democrats are going to free Assange. Here, stop. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, there, there are ways that you can capture the same energy in a completely mm-hmm. different space and change the conversation. We don't have to go where they are and debate all this, like, trans CPS uh, separating family stuff. I mean, you have to respond to some of that stuff, but you can also be changing the conversation and doing a full force offensive on why are, you know, why are Republicans trying to ban books and da da da? Why are, you know, why are Republicans so silent on the the influence of big money in politics? Why are they trying to buy the Supreme Court? Activist Republicans. You can make the conversation anything you want it to be, but Democrats are always in a defensive crouch. I will say that the student debt cancellation, I think, feels so good despite being, you know, inadequate. But it <laughs> felt so fresh to yeah. so many of us because it was – we're controlling the media narrative. We are responding to Republican Republicans crying and moderate Dems, corporate Dems crying. Yeah. They're the ones that are losing, and we're like – you know. It, it, the stakes seem lower because it's like, you know, if, if Bate or Robbie or whatever want to do their little radars, I'm like, LOL, cry, cry more. We won. We are <laughs> controlling this narrative. Yeah. You know, and that, that's a place that the Democrats should always try to be, especially since they ostensibly are for the good things. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at the White House Twitter. I was like, why did it take them 12, uh, 18 months to hire somebody that knew how to effectively run a Twitter? Like, that's right. the type of trolling you're supposed to do. Like, right. all of what you just said, I'm like, you sat on the phone. For, we've been on it for like five minutes and you legit brought out three different issues, free speech being my favorite, to literally give them a way out. And it's like, in all of the 300 plus million people in America, they can't find like 50 people for a comms team that know how to do that. And it just, it blows my mind. So I, that's why I wanted to clarify with you and ask for your insight. Before I run, I did have a question following up with the whole theme now of, uh, oh, you should get another co-host. So... And despite people think, I'm just like, oh, I'd love to, I mean, it would be fun. But I would actually (laughs) say, I would, in the dream job. But I would say, if you wanted to just go with somebody random or like from the call-in thing, I would say, why don't you just like pick five people and then like each week, each person does an episode with you and then like let the Patreon community vote and see who they love the most. I think it'd be really (laughs) a fun little ginning up some excitement Look, make them all premium episodes so they every everybody has to subscribe. But, you know, I don't know. It's just something <laughs> random. Look, I think that's fun. I, you, you guys know how much I enjoy this. Look, I'm sitting here. I have not checked into my flight. I only have a vague idea of where, when it is. I think it's sometime in the 10 o'clock hour. I was like, I need I, to know that. <laughs> I, like, I need to get my life together. But here I am. I'm uh, sitting here happily chatting away well into hour two because I just enjoy talking to you guys so much. So I kind of actually really like that idea. Sometimes I forget that the that the podcast people, overwhelming majority of them have no idea about what's going over here on over here in Colin. So when you first said it, I was like, well, they already know. Like, we already have that. There's no need to do it, do it on the podcast because we're already having a podcast together. It's called The Debrief. 
But there is a difference in the size of the audience. So I take your point. And let me let me give that some thought. Because it would also be a nice way for me to take a break from having to schedule stuff so much. Uh, is to just... <laughs> Listen. Yeah. I am, I, I am willing to put in the research so that my episode... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but no, I think it would be a really fun little thing. We need joy in the left space. I feel like when we got uh, college debt relief last week, there was joy in the world. And I feel like mm-hmm. we deserve more of that. So I appreciate what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Day. I appreciate you. Keep the faith. You too. All right. Eric. I, Eric Smith, I got to Every time I see your name, I think not Cousin Eric. And I, I need to find a name for you that's something other than not Cousin Eric. Like, did, did you watch that dinosaur show from the 90s with the like oh, yeah. uh, stuffed? You not know, I was like, not the baby. <laughs> Okay. Um, so I really, um, I, I, I'm, I have this interesting kind of like love for Rokana just because mm-hmm. he does all these type of stuff, but he comes on left, his me- left media, even though he in- kind of like irritates me when he comes on. Cause it's like, he, he, he sees the point and then he just goes right around it. And it's like, uh. He's, yeah, he's the thing about Rokana and I almost have to, like, I kind of, kind of respect this. He's smart. Yeah. You know, he knows what he's doing and he knows how to answer questions. I hope that he uses that power for good and not evil, mm-hmm. you know, but he know like on some levels, like game, game, respect game. And I, cause I really believe when I hear him speak, I think if he was just like, maybe like 25%, a little bit more radical, mm-hmm. I think he would be a good replacement for, you know, taking up the Bernie uh, Sanders mantle. I, I think he handles interviews very well. Mm-hmm. I this and he has a very like he he kinda I for at least when I hear him speak, there's a little bit of a charisma to him. Like he's not boring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a boring person. He does have somewhat of a personality. I think he kinda holds himself back. But I think if he's just you know, I just think twenty five percent. I mean I don't I don't think he gotta go I'm like I would love him to go farther, but if he was like twenty five percent further, I could see him you know, being someone like, okay, if he would have run in the Democratic Party, maybe. Mm-hmm. We shall see. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that, like, really irks me is when Rokhan and people from the squad speak is their lack of... It's like a lack of a strategy. Like, I would, um, I would be far more gracious to them mm-hmm. if they were like, like when you brought up Morgan Harper running in um, Ohio in the mm-hmm. Democratic primary, they were like, "Okay, listen here, Nancy, Morgan Mar- Morgan Harper, that's our candidate, that's our girl mm-hmm. in the primary. We're gonna push for her, and we're gonna have you know a dog fight. Mm-hmm. And if Morgan Harper wins, we all gonna back her. But if mm-hmm. you know if she loses and Tim Ryan's gonna wins." And they said, in the general, okay, I'll back him in the general. But when it comes to the primaries, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. I would have a little bit, because then I could see, okay, at the very least, they're fighting in the primary. They still want a Democrat, I guess, Tim Ryan, what's a, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I hear him speak, and I just want to dropkick him. <laughs> but, um, like, to me, they're not even doing what I would consider the most basic of stuff because I still think they don't view Nancy Pelosi as an enemy, which is, 
odd to me. Like, uh, like she's not your friend. Yeah. I, and I, you look, I think that they're, I don't know. Are they scared of her? I, it seems like they all have an agreement. I definitely think there's some type of, uh, I definitely think there is ever since, um, um, AOC did when she first got in and had that, uh, uh, protest outside of Nancy Pelosi office. Mm-hmm. I truly believe somewhere in some back room, there was a deal struck or there was maybe not, you know, in, uh, explicit terms, but at the very least, it was an implicit conversation had mm-hmm. that to me, at least with Nancy Pelosi and certain really high end Democratic officials, mm-hmm. they will not, we will not get involved in your seats and your races. Yeah. I, look, I do think that first day of AOC was unpre- unprecedented and it pretended a very different kind of politics that must have been legitimately scary. For the establishment. And instead of seeing their fear and seeing their what must have been a pretty harsh reaction behind behind the scenes. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a kind reaction. Because there was the, this what was reported at the time was that they Nancy and all of them took the squad members out to lunch and basically wine and dine them and then we got the Mama Bear article, right? So, you know, maybe maybe it was a good cop, bad cop. I don't know what the situation it was. But obviously, there was a strategy put into place that resulted in there never being a moment like that again. And people point to Cori Bush on the congressional steps over the eviction moratorium as an example of the squad being willing to be adversarial to the establishment. And this is not I, – I don't have any knowledge and we'll – We'll find out. Maybe someday the history books are read about it, about whether or not basically they got the okay from from the establishment to do that protest because they knew that the court was going to overturn the moratorium anyway. Mm-hmm. But that is my belief. I'm happy to talk to Cori Bush or anybody else involved on the podcast and be disavowed of that belief. But I got to be honest, that at, at, my point is, at this point is my belief. So we have never, since AOC's first day in office, seen them do anything at all adversarial. The COVID regulations meant that you can no longer just walk into Congress. It's no longer the people's house. And therefore, even if Sunrise wanted to do a demonstration like that without a Congress member affiliated, they would not be able to. Because now you have to have permission to go in there and be affiliated with a congressional member. So all of these things have aligned to make it almost impossible to do any better than we had it on AOC's first day back in the beginning of 2019. And And I was going to say, when you brought up the um, Debt Collective and the Sunrise Movement, Mm -hmm. one of the things I hope the Debt Collective never does in in mimics, I think the Sunrise Movement got to me, in my opinion, too close to uh, progressive uh, elected officials. Mm -hmm. I feel like, to me, they had much sharper teeth in the beginning of their institution, when they first started organizing these young, uh, you know, high school, college kids, mm-hmm. I can I felt like them getting defanged. They are not nearly as forceful or as um, hard-headed in their demands as they used to be, and mm-hmm. I think that's directly correlated to them being so now 
associated to uh, progressive elected officials. And I hope the debt collective, I think, I hope they, they, they really control that relationship line. Because I do, like, I know they need to talk to these people, but I really hope that because the debt collectors understand this is our institution, this is what we are going to do, and to us, you are the tool, we are the controller. And I think with the Sunrise Movement, because I, I when the Sunrise Movement came out and praised this, like even Rokana did, $300 billion for climate change, mm-hmm. it makes me like, wait a minute. Y'all were just telling me that we need more like uh, two trillion. Oh, Bernie's climate plan was what, like seventeen trillion or something like yeah. that? <laughs> uh huh. Like we need trillions of dollars. Like, like every like last I heard, like we have what thirty years is was the last um thing I uh the uh, last um projections before it's like almost thirty years of actually really changing what we're doing. Unless it's doom days. And like, because all the predictions say we're going to hit 1.5. Most likely, we're probably going to hit two. That two degrees, like one point between 1.5 and two degrees is almost like a foregone conclusion. We will hit that. But we can still mitigate it to a point where we don't get to three where it's doomsday. And that's going to take trillions of dollars. And we don't have time to wait another eight years. And I and unfortunately, I, and I think what's sad is because of their unwillingness to look at this bill and being like three hundred bill, uh, billion is not enough, and I'm going to throw it out the window because three hundred billion is not going to do anything. Yeah, you know, I was so funny. I would, you're, you're saying three hundred billion, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's the number that the student debt uh, cancellation is going to quote unquote cost. We all know MMT. Don't at me, but you know, that's the, the price tag on it, as it were. And I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that the biggest uh, climate reform in the, in the history of the world is equivalent to the interest that you're forgoing from a bunch of student debtors? Yeah. <laughs> Are you saying that me and, like, the 44 other million people, well, not me literally, because my debt's not, you know, involved in this, but 44 million-odd uh, student debtors in the United States of America could have bound together and insult climate change better than the American government if our loan payments were going back to, you know, environmental causes instead of, like, Navient? Uh-huh. <laughs> it makes, and unfortunately, I, because I think you brought this up, maybe, a, I, wasn't sure, I think it was not, one, of your, uh, one of the debriefs you did, where you said that climate change is not going to come into effect until the market demands it. Mm. And that's unfortunate, because I truly, because I was on the somewhat on the same level, because I always tell people, like, listen, I'm going to tell you this right now. We are not going to fix climate change until a major city is pretty much destroyed. Well, look at what's going on in Pakistan. Yeah, it's but you know what? Who 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 in America? Who in what what major industrialized country really cares about Pakistan? And we have to like say that. Like, unfortunately, I I'm devastated about what's going on in Pakistan and many of the other, uh, unfortunately, smaller country, island countries who are already suffering the effects of, you know, climate disaster. And probably that's what we need to start calling it, climate disaster, not climate change, because it's going to, it is in the disaster. It's here. It's not change. It's like, here. it's unchanged. <laughs> it's not change. It's a disaster. But if you look at, you know, the, whether it be North America, whether it be China, whether it be, you know, any of the major European countries, they unfortunately don't care about what goes on in Pakistan and the people, not to say the people don't care, because the people are just ignorant. 
they just don't like, oh, I don't know, Pakistan. They see the videos and like, oh my God, that's so sad. But they're not, they're so busy with their own, you know, troubles and things like that, that they can't put two and two together. And we're also confounded when it comes to one of the things about climate disaster that sucks is one of the things that sucks is that we as humans, we are very, we're not, we're not made to really be able to plan far out, so far out in the future. Like we are very like, you know, more present based creatures like, okay, you know, a couple of days, a year at most. So like thinking about something that's not going to happen for like 30 years, but in reality, what it is, is it's little changes that occur every single, you know, passing month and so mm-hmm. forth and so on. And it's just troubling when our greatest support, our quote unquote biggest fighters are so complacent when they get like $300 billion. When you were telling me that we need, like Bernie Sanders, $17 trillion. Mm-hmm. So to me, when you, and then when I see you say that, when I see Bernie Sanders applaud this bill when he was saying $17 trillion, it makes me, you, you, like you always say, you always talk about how you don't want to be uh, seen as, you know, um, I forget the word you like, not um, justifiable. It makes mm-hmm. me question him now. Mm-hmm. It makes like you said seventeen trillion, but now you're praising three hundred billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, I, you know that's the fundamental thing I don't get. And you know, guys know I've been saying this forever. Like either you meant it or you didn't. Either you were lying to all of us to get our twenty-seven dollars and get us involved in this campaign because everything was super exigent and people were dying and with climate and blah blah blah, or you were just blowing smoke up our, our asses. Which is it? If it's really that exigent and you meant everything that you said, you need to be fire, fire, hair on fire, pulling, you know, like running around like a cartoon character trying to do whatever you can to push the Biden administration. You know, and the alternative is that you lied to us. Yeah. You can't have it both ways. And you can't expect people to want to come to the table again next time. And, And you guys will see, like, Crystal and I, you know, debated this a little bit on this upcoming episode because, you know, we were talking about potential progressive challengers in 2024, and I think that this is something that really needs to be resolved and that a challenger is going to have to take on head on. Why should I believe you this time? Yeah, sure, I might vote for you, but am I going to work for you? Am I going to knock doors for you? Am I going to give you so many small dollar donations that you out fundraise everybody else in the, in the pack the way that Bernie was able to do despite not taking corporate money? Like, that's a big if. And maybe that maybe we're some fringe part of the left, and maybe we ultimately don't matter. And the, like the war and voters will carry this progressive challenger through. But I don't know. And the last thing I would say before I go is like I can't wait. I actually am really interested in hearing that uh, conversation with you and Crystal because I actually think the conversation to me, by like we should have been talking about prime. Like it should have been a foregone conclusion that Biden was going to get primaried in twenty twenty four by a left. Agreed. Yeah, it should have been foregone conclusion. Okay, he won. Oh, he's getting primary, and that conversation should have been had from that moment in time. Once he won, he had his inauguration. We could let him little celebrate a little bit, you know, you know, be a little nice. But after his inauguration, we should have been like, okay, who is it going to be? A hundred percent. Who is it going to be? And here are, and there should have been a whole bunch of people that needed. And I think the problem is the corporate Democrats don't have to do that because they all serve the same people. They already know their marching orders. They don't have to get together. It's the same reason like when people talk about, like Robbie, I think sometimes misses it. There's a reason why Jeff Bezos, uh, Bill Gates, um, Elon Musk, they don't really need to talk to each other because one, there's so few of them and they all, we already know what they need, they what they want. They mm-hmm. want to make it easier for them to make as much money as possible. Mm-hmm. 
they know what they need to do. They don't have to get in the rooms. Us, on the other hand, we have to get into the room. We like all the squad members. Marianne Williamson, I think, needs to get in the room. I would even include some people may get mad at this, but I think even someone like an Andrew Yang needs to get into this room. Mm-hmm. Um, and they need to sit down and they need to talk and be like, I would include an even left independent, whether it be TYT, I think you, I think uh, Crystal Ball, I think Kyle, I think people from um, the Revolutionary Black Network. They should have delegates in that room. And they should be talking about who are going to be. I know they're more third party. Uh, they're very strictly third party uh, people. But even in, and even on that one, I think the third party should then be having a room of their own. Like the, the I agree. should be getting in a room and saying like, we need another Jill Scott, right? <laughs> Jill, I think, Stein? Jill Stein. Jill Stein. I love Jill Scott, but. <laughs> <laughs> We need another Jill Stein, and we need to know who that's going to be. So these rooms need to happen, and I don't think these rooms are happening, and and we're just conceding it. And I think part of the problem is we don't have warriors at all in the elected official who are willing. They they don't want to be hated. I I come down to say, and I think what happened with the last point I make is what happened with Cori Bush is I think Cori Bush. If there was someone, may you know, with our politics already in office who already had the infrastructure and knew how Congress worked, Cory Bush, I think, would have been a much a bigger fighter. And I, I think what happened mm. was he gets into office, and you say it a lot, like She's alone. a lot of like you know leftist people for them to hire. Mm-hmm. Who knows what's going on? What's the you know four hundred one? 411 or 311, I think the term is, in Congress. Like, mm-hmm. how does committees work? How do you get on committees? Mm-hmm. How do the rules work? So now they all get, you know, AOC comes in and she has to go to Ayanna Presley because she's been there for a little bit. And she's more like a Warren type. So this mm-hmm. is how it works. Mm-hmm. So now they got you because you got to go to them for information. And no one wants to go to, like you said, when you had Ralph Nader on, no one wants to go to Ralph Nader because Bernie Sanders shunned Ralph Nader. Mm-hmm. We should get Ralph back on. I love that episode. And that to me, yeah, that was a great episode. And that to me was one of the biggest things. Bernie Sanders shunned. Uh, 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 um, I'm sorry, what's the guy's name from Alaska? Who who I wish was just younger and whatever. We, I wish we could have swapped him. Wait, who's from Alaska? Gravel. Oh, Mike Gravel. Yeah, yeah, of course. I wish if we could swapped mm-hmm. Mike Gravel with Bernie Sanders. I think that might have been because Mike Gravel, I, I, I'm not sure if because he's from Alaska and Alaskans just don't care because they, you know, cold, they're grumpy. <laughs> they like, I, I don't need people to like me. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I'm trying to find that clip. Someone did that super cut from him wiling out in 2008 and everybody acted like he was crazy, but like he was like a high key king. Yeah. And it's just like, because to me, it's like those two people. Like my Mike Ravel and a Ralph Nader should be the should have been the squad's best friend. Right. They those two people should have been like, okay, here's how it works. You need some people, I can get you some people. I can tell you like who to avoid, who not to avoid, who kinda, you know, a little shady. But yeah, that's all I wanted to talk about. I think, you know, I think this episode is one of the more interesting and revealing Rokana episodes. And I feel like every time you have him on a lot, like things are just getting more revealed and revealed. So I think your questions get a little bit more concise and concentrated and better in how you question them. And the way he responds to them uh, also reveals so much. So I, 
as much as you can have row one, I definitely am for it because I get I think we learn so much. Well, I appreciate that, Eric. I yeah. appreciate you a lot. You have a good one. You too. All right, Omar, you're up, but I also found this Microvel video, so humor me for a second. Let's see if we can get some good Microvel moments in the chat. Thank you, and Senator Gravel, for those who may not be familiar with your past, two terms U.S. Senate from Alaska, you played a role in the fight to cut off money for the Vietnam War. What would be your advice, Senator, for the elected officials on this stage who are at a conflict, opposed to the conflict, but also feel the need to uh, keep on funding the conflict? First off, understand that this war was lost the day that George Bush invaded Iraq on a fraudulent basis. Understand that. Now, with respect to what's going on in the Congress, I'm, I'm really embarrassed. So we passed, and the media is in a frenzy right today with what has been passed. What has been passed? George Bush communicated over a year ago that he would not get out of Iraq until he left office. Do we not believe him? We need to find another way. That's where I, I really would like to sit down with Pelosi and with Reid, and, and I would hope the other senators would focus on how do you get out? You pass a law, not a resolution, a law making it a felony to stay there. And I'll give you the text of it. And if, you, if you're worried about filibuster, here's what you do tactically. They can pass it in the House. we got the votes there. In the Senate, let them filibuster it. And let Reid call up every at 12 o'clock every day to have a closure vote and let the American people see clearly who's keeping the war going and who's not. And that's just the beginning of the tactic if they're tough enough to do it. Senator Gravel, at a forum earlier this year, I want to get this right, you said it doesn't matter whether you are elected president or not. So then why are you here tonight? Shouldn't debates be for candidates who are in the race to win the race? Brian, you're right. I made that statement. But that's before I had a chance to stand with him a couple, three times. It's like going into the Senate. I mean, the first time you get there, you're all excited. My God, how did I ever get here? Then about six months later, you say, how the hell did the rest of them get here? And, and i got to tell you, after standing up with them, some of these people frighten me. They frighten me. When, when you have mainline candidates that turn around and say that there's nothing off the table with respect to Iran, that's code for using nukes, nuclear devices. I've got to tell you, I'm President of the United States. There will be no preemptive wars with nuclear devices. In my mind, it's immoral, and it's been immoral for the last 50 years as part of American foreign policy. Let's use a little moderator discretion here. Senator Gravel, that's a weighty charge. Who on this stage exactly tonight uh, 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 were? you uh, so much? Well, I would say the top tier ones. Top tier ones. They made statements. Oh, Joe, I'll include you too. You have a certain arrogance. You want to you tell the Iraqis how to run their country. I got to tell you, we should just play get out. Just play get out. It's their country. They're asking us to leave and we insist on staying there. And why not get out? What harm is it going to do? Oh, you hear the statement. Well, my God, the soldiers will have died in vain. The entire deaths of Vietnam died in vain. And they're dying in vain right this very second. You know what's worse than a soldier dying in vain? is more soldiers dying in vain. That's what's worse. Short answer. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll cut it off there. But, um, oh, we got a little bit of an echo happening down there. Am I on? I'm on. Am I on? Yeah, I, I can hear you. I don't know if the audio is bad. 
Uh, no, it's just that we're hearing me twice. But if you can take me off speaker, I think that'll probably fix it. Okay. Did, did that fix it? Yeah, that's great. Okay. What's, what's on your mind, Omar? I mean, if, if our congressman members had half that courage, I mean, LOL. Um, I was just going to share, sorry, Brie, and it might sound like a little bit of personal venting of like personal spouts that I have with people on social media, but I just feel like it gives a little bit of insight in in terms of like the ideology that we see. Like with Ro Khanna, he made a a comment saying like, oh, like if we took, if we happen to take Biden's promise to cancel all the debt, literally like, like that was our bad for taking him literally. I don't know if you recall that, that little bit, Mm. but, but. But I encounter like the same kind of kind of discourse, right? Which is like, um, I would repost Biden's website showing the promise to cancel all of the debt, mm-hmm. and then you get this kind of rhetoric where it's like, oh well, can you tell me what better option to have because the Republicans, blah blah blah, evil Republicans, mm-hmm. and then actually have the audacity to say, hey, and if you thought the promise meant to cancel all the debt. I have a, a bridge to sell you for taking mm-hmm. literally. And I I just hear Ro Connor saying something that virtually parallels that sentiment. And I I don't I don't know how, how libs get away this with this kind of ideology. Um mm-hmm. and if you don't mind me just adding a second quick point going mm-hmm. back to the, the Bragman um uh, episode. Mm-hmm. where it's this thing where he, he's like so worried about um the oppressed people and people in risk for COVID and this, all this kind of stuff, but it's like this attitude where like they're so worried about fighting for for the poor people or whatnot, but they don't even try to listen to them, right? Like they don't even bother to like maybe put their ear on the ground and see what the the average person actually is for in terms of like these COVID policies. Because I mean, I, I don't know if I speak, I can even speak for the rest, but just on a personal level, I feel like most people are probably over it, you know? And for him to, like, be waving this banner of, like, oh, I'm here worried to death about the poor people who are in risk for COVID. But, like I mentioned, it just seems like they might be a little bit out of touch. Um, I'm not sure if you also have jumped into the call-in with, with Glenn and it's Q Anthony, mm-hmm. where there was an episode that it was kind of the same kind of issue where the comment was straight up, like, I'm willing to fight for working class people, but that doesn't mean I have to fight fight alongside with them. That was more in rhetoric in terms of like making working class coalitions sometimes with like, you know, not necessarily like um, uh, extremists, like right wingers, but, you know, just coming coming together as a working class. And I feel that sentiment kind of also drags on with 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 Bragman. They're so worried about about the people, but they don't even bother to even listen to them. So just just those two points. I hope it's it's not too too um uh, too broken up. No, not at all. I mean it's 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 interesting. It's difficult. First, I'll say that if you guys are interested in this sort of thing, I, I did the last you know the West Wing thing is my favorite podcast to talk about all the time. They had their last episode. You know they watch every episode of the West Wing thing and do a podcast. They just had their last episode and I was on it and. We recorded shortly after I did the Walker Robbie interview, and we ended up spending the first hour or so talking about the COVID stuff because uh, Dave, uh, one of the hosts, is I mean they both live in California, but Dave is really 
kind of more along um, Walker's side of things, is very frustrated by uh, what he feels like is the government kind of abdicating the responsibility to try anything to prevent the spread of COVID. And it's difficult because my feeling is that I think it's wrong for the government to abdicate its responsibility. I think that the crisis was poorly handled. I think that there are things that they could have done to make people less scared of the vaccine. They could have been more clear about the pros and cons so that people can make informed decisions but wouldn't feel like they were getting hoodwinked and therefore not want to do it. They could have done more to make just masks and vaccines available instead of using coercive measures. They could have done more that focused not on individual responsibility, like getting vaccinated and wearing masks, but getting proper HVAC systems uh, in restaurants and schools and public places. Uh, they could have done things that make it easier for people to stay home and not feel like they, to the extent that people wanted to go back to work because they needed the money, they could have made it easier by giving them money. They could have made it easier to stay out of the grocery stores by sending food to people's houses. They could have, um, you know, generally speaking, done more. But I also appreciate that they didn't do those things. And so people feel like the choices are between a half-assed policy that doesn't make any sense and also foregoing income, for having to pay for childcare, kids having learning delays, and all for what? For nothing. For a, a virus that's still out there. I wish we were able to have a conversation. And this is why I had Robbie and Walker. And I know people were very frustrated with the conversation. But frankly, I was very pleased with how it went. Because I've never heard two people on the opposite side of that issue have a conversation that wasn't filled with invectives and claims that the other person just wanted people to die and screaming matches and all that sort of thing. And it helped to clarify for me that there is a middle road that is never charted and never really discussed of people who can acknowledge that they want the government to do more to help to stop in COVID at the same time that they don't want some of the interventions that have come down the pike to persist. That there needs to be, like the people are right to, you know, there's one camp that says keep schools closed. There's one camp that keep, says keep school, schools open. And each side says the other side doesn't care about the health of kids or the education quality of kids. I think that both sides care about the health of kids and the education quality of kids. But they have different ideas about what is actually going to satisfy those needs. And people who think that you're not going to really improve the health of kids very much, even though they're at a lot of educational risk, are going to say go ahead and open it back up. And obviously the other side thinks the other, uh, opposite. But the core problem is how do you make schools safer for kids? Alternatively, is there a way to get better remote education for the people whose kids are vulnerable and don't or can't go back to school? Like that's the conversation I wish we were having, but we never get to have it. We never get to have it. And even opening your mouth to admit that there are problems with Fauci and the CDC and stuff in some of these liberal circles makes you persona non grata, makes you come off as an anti-vaxxer. I was introduced by... A guy I went on a date with some months ago, you know, to his parents, and he, like, joked, oh, here's Brianna, here's an aunt, she's an anti-vaxxer. And I'm like, first of all, why would you do that to me? <laughs> but also it was because I was willing to say, you know, critical things about Fauci and the CDC's behavior over the course of the last two years. It's got to be something other than that. And Democrats have got to figure out how to say some honest things about mistakes that were made with covid that doesn't undermine the value of vaccines and boosters to the extent that they are valuable and work. If you want people to take this new Omicron variant vaccine that's coming out, 
you got to be honest about what it can do, what it can't do, and what we're not quite sure what it might be able to do. And you got to stop. You got to make it free the same way you did in 2021. You've got to put it outside of schools and hospitals and businesses instead of doing what Biden's doing, which is to stop subsidizing all of that stuff and to stop sending people masks and all of that. Biden is doing the worst of all worlds, which is still taking an approach that says, like, mandates and stuff are good while also withdrawing the stuff that allows people to protect themselves for free. I don't know, man. It's tough. Did I lose you? Oh, no, there you are online. I'm sorry. I don't even remember your original question or if I answered it. Um, Do you want to unmute yourself? You don't have to if you're done. I can just go on to Jonathan. Oh, you're mad glitching up. Oh, there you go. Hey, Omar. Omar? Hello? Looks like we're having a little bit of technical problems. I'm sorry, Omar. I can hear you briefly when you unmute yourself, but it's like a glitchy audio. So I move on. But look, thank you for calling in. What's on your mind, Jonathan? Hello. I I thought the final West Wing episode was awesome. Like it was it was honestly just the perfect tie off. Uh, just great conversation the whole time. I actually also, by the way, like that uh, conversation. I feel the same way you did about it. I thought it was very productive and surprisingly civil. Uh, you know, yeah. like I said, if you want if you want violence, you'd have to put Walker with uh, Max Blumenthal. Like they like to bite each other's heads off. Uh, you know, and kind of be uncharitable towards one another, but uh, that was actually a, a pretty productive conversation, and it, it touched on a lot of the nuances, like you said, that uh, they got missed elsewhere. You know, also I want to, you know, kind of like what you were saying earlier about how you know how it was on the campaign, just like that's just really heartbreaking because these people need your help so bad, and they don't even realize it. Like all of these people do, the squad, Rokana. Like, you gave him some help in that interview. Like, I was listening for it, too, because you told us about that on a call-in. But I do feel like we learned something about Roe in that interview. Like, he... Like, he knows that he's... Like, I mean, we knew, to a certain degree, that he was kind of a people-pleaser. But, like, it seems like he knows it, too. And, like, reading between the lines, like... Like, I think he's afraid of of disapproval and he kind of reminds me of my uncle Andy that way like he's really charming but it's all geared towards trying to make people like him and you know like you could tell like he will say even his choice of words like you know when you were talking about uh, you know countering or, or pushing back against somebody who is you know mistaken on the facts he was like and yes and I disagree with that person and I said that I disagree with that person but he won't tell them pardon me uh, I'm afraid you're mistaken on the facts like he won't correct he won't assertively correct because he's afraid of like disapproval and like I think he knows it like I think that's why he started talking about well some people's job is to coalition build and be positive and syrupy sweet blah 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 like that was interesting to me. Like I did, like I did not realize, like he was at least, you know, to that degree, kind of, uh, you know, self-aware uh, in that department. Like that was an interesting conversation, and like, 
you know, the fact is you like, like you said earlier, like when you did that hit on Fox after using some of your, your terminology, like you did help, like these people need your help. And frankly, you're so much better than like any of those Lincoln project ghouls. Like you could wipe the floor with those people. If these, if, it, if any of these folks actually listen to you on messaging, like it's very like kind of cutting edge, very refined stuff that you're doing and that you're experimenting with. And I like honestly, like I've been impressed as long as I've known who you were. Well, that's very kind of you. Look, I, my dream job, to be honest, what what I really wanted, the part of working for Bernie that I was looking forward to wasn't the idea of being in front of the camera. It's not like I asked to be national press secretary or anything. And they came to me and they were like, "What job do you want?" And I was like, well, "I don't know." And they were like, "How about this?" And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> um, but it was the idea, I thought that being in, com- in the comms department would be an opportunity to, you know, not just tweet out, oh, so when should do this, but to actually have a seat at the table and, and, and be able to vet my ideas directly. And also, like, to, to figure stuff out with people who knew more than me and to tweet them. I wasn't expecting to go and dictate anybody's comms strategy, but I thought... <laughs> Sorry, somebody tried to call. I had to. I had to reject it. No worries. Um, yeah, and, and that just that didn't happen, and I kind of just don't think it is happening, and I don't know what that's about. But like, look, I am very grateful to have you know being able to support myself doing what I do, which is what I love, and all of that. But there is a part of me that thought, you know, my dream job really would be to give really constructive advice that's being listened to. And it does frustrate me on some level that, like, you know, when, when that one squad member called me and asked me for advice, I, I was hoping that would be the beginning of something more. It never, there was never any really follow up. But in a in a in a constru- in a in an organized way, it's like it's kind of crazy to me. Like, I would take that job, you know. Like, I would I would love to help. I would I would sincerely love to help because as much as I believe in third parties and like don't put a lot of stake in the Democratic Party as a path to revolution as a communications engine to popularize the ideas that we need popularized and kind of like lay the framework for people who are more radical how could i not want to use that platform for for good and it, it's just i don't know i don't know what that short-sightedness is or, or the idea that i am perceived to be so someone i know who is good friends with aoc who i met like on a dating app years ago years ago I saw them tweet a long thread. They had like no followers. Like no one saw it but me. But they tagged Bad Faith in it. And I saw them tweet this long thread about how I'm a sellout and I am a grifter and all of this stuff. And I was like, I know you. I, I know you. And it's so weird that you think this about me. And also, I know that you are very close to AFC. And it's like, is this really what they think? Is this really the perspective? And that's like, that's the weird real. thing. Because, like, I saw some people doing that who really should have known better and who you seem to be friends with during the campaign. Like, even people like, um, like, uh, oh, what's that, what's that girl with the boy's name? Um, girl with the boy's name. Uh, yeah. From the campaign. What are girls' names that are boys' names? Yeah, anyway. Charlie. No, no, it was... Like I'll, it'll come to me probably long after this is this is over. But you know, like there were there were people that were involved with the campaign oh, that Abby? knew who you were. No, no, no. But there were like I mean, there were a few that I that I noticed on there that, that knew that knew you that knew you better, and that 
that were just like completely beyond reason and were just being like really kind of high school mean girl-ish. Even the guys, okay? No, yeah, like, I mean, I remember Jack. I forget his last name, but Jack was a big tweeter. Like, he had a lot of really great tweets. He got did viral tweets all the time, you know. And I thought, I mean, I didn't, we weren't close or anything, but, like, I worked with him on the campaign. Like, I knew who he was. I thought he was real swell. And then when Force the Vote happened, started just going real insane about me. And I was like, really? Like, just disagree with me. Like, you're allowed to just be like, ah, I'm not into Force the Vote, but why are you taking all these pot shots? I, I just don't get yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it at all. Like, it made no sense to me. It was like some kind of weird mass psychosis. And, like, it, it just, like... It, it broke my heart at the time, but like I don't, I don't even understand. I still don't understand how it happened, or why it happened, or why what what was going through these people's heads when they started behaving that way. Because like people that I, even people that I disagree with, like I'm friends with all kinds of people that I disagree with. Some people I think have really crappy politics. Like I come from a Republican family. Like I hate my family's politics. Like, I don't think they're bad people. I don't think they're grifters. I don't think they're, you know, like, I, I try to understand that stuff. But, like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Like, there's something, it's strange, but, like, there's something on the left that, for whatever reason, it, it's, like, um, just makes us self-destruct sometimes. And, um uh, I don't, I don't know what the root cause is, but we got to find that cure somehow because, uh, you know, this sort of thing, I mean, frankly, we're, we're doing the other side's job for them when we, when we behave that way, but I don't even know how I got on that topic, but <laughs> it's just, but I mean, like the fact is like a lot of these politicians, you know, even the elected, like the electeds and the people that want to get elected, they're just adrift in that department. And like, it, it's almost like for some reason they're completely clueless that they, they need help in that department or that they could benefit from help in that department. And like, it's just it, it completely like when you talk to them, you even mention like, it seems like it doesn't even occur to them. Yeah, even when I do those interviews with like uh, candidates, all of those left, you know, the congressional candidates, um, Wind Reverend Wendy, and um, even like, uh, um, why, am I, why is my brain doing this? Uh, I just talked to her from Buffalo, and she got screwed. And why am I doing this? I know. You guys know who I'm talking. Yeah, about. I know what you mean. Mine's doing it too why now. Is, I need to eat. Obviously, look. The point is. I, I am obviously not interviewing them because I want to hurt them, and I feel like the way I'm asking questions. First of all, if you've ever listened to the podcast, you know how this is going to go. You know, Amy Villa, all of those people, and and it's like I'm asking you these questions as a way to try to guide you toward the kind of posture that I think would help you, if not win, then at least fundraise, because this is what the audience wants to hear. Like, this is this is what the left wants out of the candidate. And right, just, you're teaching them jujitsu. You're teaching them self-defense. Yes. That's, and they, yes. And the, and the idea that someone would listen to that and be like, you're antagonistic. Or you're not trying to, all I'm trying to do is help these people help themselves. And they just, yeah. they, they either don't You're, you're arming them for war. Yeah. It's so odd to me. I, I don't know, man. And it's like, you do it so masterfully, too. Like, you basically, like, you... It 
feel may feel to them like an interrogation, but that's only because they haven't really thought through the kinds of things that they need to think through. And they need to be prepared when they go, you know, out into that world and face these kinds of of uh, of things. And like they need to be able to convince people and make them believe uh, that they're going to make a difference in the world. And you know, at this point, like they're completely adrift in that department, and they need the help so bad. Yeah, 100%. Sorry, India Walton. Thank you, chat. I don't know what's going on with my brain. Yeah, I don't know, Jonathan. We'll keep trying. I, look, to, for the record, I don't have any ill will to any of those people, Jack or anybody else, the Force the Boat crew, except for Owen Higgins. He didn't go someplace with that. For the rest of them, I'm yeah. willing to forgive and forget. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I, I like. I would harbor that ill will for you, basically, until they show some genuine remorse yeah. for the way they behaved. Like, I would want to see genuine remorse before I'd be willing to forgive and forget. But I mean, you know, it, yeah, know, I'm not telling you what to do. Like, I like. I can be. I can be bitter about it myself. Yeah. Well, look. I appreciate you as always calling in, Jonathan. I feel like I'm interrupting you in the middle of your shift. Are you out? Are you on an EMT? Yes, I, I am, but you know what? It's a welcome break in a breath of fresh air. And, like, I, I did enjoy this interview you did with Roe, and I did enjoy the Walker one. And your radars have been just banging all week. Like, this last one was awesome. The, you know, the one yesterday was, like, oh, man, everybody loved that one. Like, the responses were just golden in the chats, I mean, in the, in the YouTube comments. Yeah, that's the best. I love when, you know... People are like, why do you keep trying to reach out to like conservative audiences or not left line audiences? And that's why. Like, that's the kind of response that you're hoping for every time you do something like this. So, it's been a good week, and I appreciate you calling in, Jonathan. All right. All right. Keep Later. Later. Will do. All right, Sly. What's on your mind? Hey, co-host. I guess that's the streets talking about us. Like, we peanut butter and jelly out here, you know? <laughs> like, we Snoopy and Woodstock or something. I'm like, okay. You were such a trash. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I would just put it out there, B. I would talk to you all day for free. Someone starts talking, you got to pay them. I would talk to you all day. <laughs> don't, don't let them, don't let them, don't mind none of that. <laughs> but are you, are you going somewhere? Because when I hopped yeah. into the... You're leaving I, Rising? No, no, no. No, I thought you were oh. going somewhere tonight. Yeah, I have a flight at 1030-ish, so I'm going to have oh. to get off of here soon. Catch but, a flight. My feelings, okay. I ain't mad at you. <laughs> uh, people, when you logged down, were talking about uh, Ryan and Emily going uh, to Breaking Points and leaving Rising. Ryan and Emily going. Oh, they did. Oh, man, they doing some doing some stuff. The Breaking Points, they getting, waiting until they get you. They about to offer you a contract? Or us? No. I guess us. Are they offering us a contract? What's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that people leave. It. I mean, Kim obviously had her Two black calls. Ah, uh, yeah. With the Fauci interview, which I think is frankly legitimate, but I think that unfortunately, because of someone who keeps leaking stuff to the Daily Beast and all of these articles that keep getting written. Like, there's this perception that it's something wrong at Rising that I think is not really fair to Rising and is a little frustrating. But, you know, Kim had her own personal reasons, which I respect, for leaving. That had nothing to do with anything except for, like, the Fauci interview. And I I don't know what Ryan and Emily's motivation is. It seems like they're doing the exact same show, just in a different platform. You know, it it is what it is, but... 
you know, I don't like the idea that there's like this negative inference that there's something wrong at rising since I don't know, I have my like weird sense of solidarity there now because I do like all the staff members so much. But um no, I'm not going anywhere. Okay, not 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 anytime soon anyways. <laughs> well, you know, but the thing is when you're ready to renegotiate your contract, start just leaking it out. Like, hey, listen, like I I'm not saying I'm going anywhere, but there's options. Okay. Depending on how much y'all want to make me feel uh wanted, you know. Um but did you see what Jay Z was saying on Twitter? Oh, that's capitalism stuff? He he thought what happened to he, hello? He thought, yeah, he thought what? He thought it was a slur made up against him. Wait, capitalism? He said that now they're trying to make up terms talking about eat the rich and capitalism. Like, that's going to stop me from oh. making money. <laughs> like, that's going to make me feel bad. But the way that he, he made it seem like they made it just for him. Yeah, so I didn't. I mean, I just saw like the tweet. I didn't get into all of the. You didn't read. You didn't hear the the Twitter space. No, there was a Twitter oh, space. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it don't. You know, if you would have heard, it was like it was like a minute. I think maybe two minutes long. You could just tell he don't read nothing. He don't read <laughs> nothing. I'd be surprised if he even read his contract. He don't read nothing. Just, okay, it was wait, wait, so- I got it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We're just gonna listen to this real quick. Play it. Okay. Wait a minute. Yeah, we're not gonna stop. You know, the, the hip hop is young. We still, we still growing, and we're not falling for that technology. Whatever you know, this public puts out there now. That you know, before it was the American dream. Pull yourself out of bootstraps, and you can make yourself. You can make it in America. All these these lies that America told us our whole life. Um, and then when we start getting it, they try to lock us out of it. They start inventing words like, you know, capitalists and, you know, things like that. I mean, you know, we've been called nigger and monkeys and shit. I don't care. I don't, those words y'all come up with, y'all got to come up with stronger words. When I say y'all, I'm not talking about you. The words they come up with, they got to come up with stronger words. We're not going to stop. We're not going to be tricked out of our position. Y'all locked us out. Y'all created a system that, you know, doesn't include us. We said, fine. We went our alternate route. We created this music. We did our thing. You know, we hustled. We fucking killed ourselves to get to this space. And, you know, now it's like, you know, you know, eat the rich. And, man, we're not stopping. So that evolution is, you know, from us, you know, we came from selling seven records and selling records out our trunk. And, you know, no radio play. And I think reasonable doubt it. 36,000 the first week or some, something like that. I may, I may be, I may be uh, adding a little to it, you know? So, you know, we come from the, I come from Marcy projects in my first house, 615 Lexington Avenue, my grandmother's house, seven families live like she has seven kids. Uh, my mother and you know, my parents and siblings lived in that house. My aunt Nisi lived in that house. Hootie lived in that house. Butchie lived in the basement. I mean, this is one house. I went back to that house. I did an interview with Oprah, and, and, and I couldn't believe how small this house was, that all of us lived in that house. So, again, that evolution that you speak of, it's just real, and it's happening in real time, and I'm talking about it. And, um, you know, I'm, we're not going to stop, and we're not going to stop talking about it. You're not going to trick us out of and make us feel ashamed to be successful in a place that, you know, um, set up a system for us to be dead at 21. Um, 
Yes. All right. You know what? Let's talk about this. Let's talk so, about it. This is like not an uncommon. I mean, okay, let's table the aspect where it sounds like he might literally think Eat the Rich is a slogan that was made up just for him. Maybe he thinks that literally. Capitalism maybe, too. Yeah, capitalism too. Capitalism that. too. Maybe that was just kind of, uh, he didn't mean literally. Nah, I think he meant, nah, don't give him no, don't shoot him bad. I don't know. I don't know. Literally. Okay, let's just put that to the side because we can all agree that that's ridiculous and kind of hilarious <laughs> if it's true. Okay. But the part where he is doing, I mean, there's something that's very common. And, like, not relatable, but it's a very common refrain you hear about, like, black capitalists where they do feel like we've been shut out forever and, like, why why am I expected to play by a different set of rules now that I've actually made it? And there is this resentment. And I think I talked to um, Teslin Figaro on the podcast about this some months ago Mm -hmm. where she was like the left has to figure out how to reckon with that if it wants to get black people on board. Because there is this hustle mentality. There is a lot of pride that people have in being able to have made it in a racist system, in a, in a rigged system. You know, if you have a whole group of people that's been raised up on, you got to work twice as hard and all of that. If people do and then they've achieved, they are going to take it, I think, twice as hard when you tell them that we're, we're going to switch the whole economic system because it's substantively unfair. And I honestly, I obviously don't care. Like, I think, sorry, like you should have been putting all that energy into bringing down capitalism instead of trying to be a billionaire. But like, I also on some level, you know, that's, I know that that's not a sympathetic response and that there has to be a certain degree of compassion that we bring to these people, even though we find it to be ridiculous and very distasteful. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I don't think I have any <laughs> sympathy for Jay Z in this situation. I, I think he's gonna be alright. I mean, that this is the same brother. I, now it's funny because when people say outlandish things like like what he said today, then like a whole bunch of stuff starts coming up. So then I didn't even know that he did this, but he brought a crypto camp to Stop. his project. Stop. Yes, to the Marcy projects. Oh. Yes. This is as as uh, Bitcoin is going through the tank, and he's people who barely don't have nothing for themselves. He's just like, nah, yeah, put it in this. Oh, people are dragging him. Yeah, as they should, because this is the same brother. He wanted to be all up on the soundtrack for that Fred Hampton movie, talking about, oh, I was born on the same day he got assassinated, and trying to make some type of parallel between the two when. <laughs> Wait, somebody said somebody said Jay-Z learned how to spell Basquiat and hasn't stopped being amazing. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't looked back. He hasn't looked back. That's why you can't teach niggas words. Because then if you start teaching niggas words, this is somebody, what you get. Somebody said Jay-Z really was on that space crying about us calling him a capitalist. He is. Then tried to say that calling black rich folks capitalists is similar similar to the N-word. LMAO. Yeah, I mean Oh, I didn't. I how did I miss all of this? He is getting destroyed. Because yeah. he, he he's trying to have it both ways, and you can't be the man of the. And that's the thing about it is that he tries to straddle this thing. You saw he did the same thing with the NFL Kaepernick thing, mm-hmm. and yeah, he's just that. trying to get a deal. You see the same thing, and I hate that he's doing it, and I hate that he's bringing in people like Meek Mill to do it as well. Mm-hmm. But all this bail reform thing, but then what he's really just trying to do is just invest. He's investing a lot of money in the probation system and the technology that's going into that, so they can watch you while you're at home and like, 
again, he's like, just be what you are. If you want to just be a cap, that's fine, bro. Mm-hmm. But then like all this other stuff is like, it's extra. And into what you were saying about Tesla's Figaro point, I get that too. You know, like, you know, entrepreneur, you want to have your own business, ownership, things like that. Well, let's start from an earlier age, because this is something that I even, because now, because he said all this, I got to make a lesson plan for my students about Jay-Z. So, you know, so my kid's not aspiring to be that. Now he got me over here in the lab trying to create. Um, But instead of, you know, when we talk about businesses and stuff like that, let's start introducing to the kids concepts about worker co-ops. You know, there's a, Mm -hmm. you know, African proverb, you know, I'm Nigerian. If 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 you want to go far, if you want to go far and go fast, you go alone. But if you want to, oh, what's that? It, you know, if you, if you want, yeah, if you want to go fast, go alone. Go alone. If you go far. Go together. If you want to go, yeah, go together. So, so when you start talking about a different concept in terms of like what a business can look like and you would get a lot further if you didn't just put all that responsibility on yourself, but then you can share it with the people that you come up with in a much more equitable way across the board, start having those type of conversations from a young age. And then you can still have your own business and feel like you own something, whatever. And then you're not exploiting people. Cause that's the biggest thing about it. Like Jay, we, nobody's mad at you for having nice things, mm-hmm. but then when you get to the point of having nice things um, to the level he's at, there's exploitation, mm-hmm. you know, that that's, that's involved in it. And listen, so when we talk about eating the rich and getting all the billionaires out of here, we might save the black ones for last, you know, <laughs> but like, we might put you and Rihanna and then I'm still kind of holding out on LeBron. There's something about LeBron that make me want to just be like, he just, he's close. He almost had it with the protest and then Brock, yeah, then Barry, Barry got in the way of that one, you know? Yo, if so anybody knows, if anybody knows LeBron or Cardi B or has a way to get us in touch, like, I know people think that I'm a real cornball for thinking that anything's going to be happening. Like, the revolution's going to happen with one of these celebrities. But I'm telling you, Listen. we got a couple of them to tip. It, w- it wouldn't hurt. I'm looking at Lil Baby, too. The kids, they love Lil Baby. I don't know if you listen to Lil Baby. Does he Baby. have good politics? Didn't he? Was he the one that got in trouble for saying he was going to shoot somebody at a concert? Or something? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, okay. Let me not well, mix I mean, Let me not, you, okay. let me not <laughs> Like he was just in trouble for something. Uh, Atlanta's Atlanta's hot right now. Let's not just go throwing <laughs> allegations on. Uh, they just they just got young thug and. Oh, uh, it was the homophobia. It was the homophobia. What did he do? There, he's just been a little Nas X. Do you remember this? Oh, don't make me he go did? back to like 2020. No, I don't think he little baby did. Yeah. Okay. Wait a minute. Oh, he said that thing about raise your hand if you don't have AIDS or something. And the. No, that was no, that was the baby. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? I'm sorry. I'm 37 years old. Leave me alone. Who are you, which which one of these little ones are you talking about? Okay, see, okay, this is where you know the younger co-host comes in. We, we bridge the gap. This is where we bridge bridge the I'm gap. Sorry. Okay. Okay, who are you talking about? So that's the baby. I'm uh-huh. talking about little baby. Come on, that can't be real. <laughs> they can't be two separate people. It's two different, and then there's another person just called Baby. Nah, stop it. No, I'm messing. I'm messing. I'm messing. Okay. I'm messing. There, might, you know, there might be. I don't, there's Baby Keem. That's somebody, but that's a whole nother separate thing. Dub <laughs> Baby and there's, a, there's Little Baby, Dub Baby, and then there's Baby Keem. 
Okay, none of y'all better cut this. If I see someone of you cut this, I'm looking at you, case study. You like to cut me being real cringy on this app. <laughs> like, which baby is it again? <laughs> okay, so little baby is cool now. Little baby, now, now he doesn't have any, um, uh, any as far as I know, anyways, like homophobia and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff like that. He seems real cool. Um, he actually just came out with a documentary. I'm gonna show my kids. Uh, his documentary uh, real early in the game but then um, he is somebody that definitely understands and that's the thing that to the people who are most impacted by this system they understand it now connecting the dots is another thing but then he sees like how messed up this system is he's just like I'm just trying to you know he was selling drugs and doing that kind of thing Mm -hmm. just trying to get up out of it and in terms of his politic he came out with a song really good song called uh the bigger picture and that mm-hmm. was during the george floyd protests and stuff like that it, you know listen to it uh maybe it'll be one of the outro songs for one of the future episodes mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um but then the sad thing about it right is that they kind of know a little bit but then it's not really connected so the thing that broke my heart i just seen it yesterday guess who tried to sit down with this brother because she knows everybody watching him He's from Georgia. Just guess. He's from Georgia. Stacey Abrams. Yes. Yes. And I'm thinking the whole whole time I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, bro, you don't even know she's trying to build a a, a cop city. You don't even know. You don't even know that she wants to she wants to subsidize the rent for the police. She wants to increase the pay for the police. Oh, yeah. Listen, if she had a vote, she was going to vote for them 100,000 cops that Biden's talking about. He don't even know. He just like, you know what? Like, it's very surface level in terms of just like, okay, how I don't know. Like I said, they don't really know, like, how we supposed to solve it, but they know what's kind of wrong. And that's when they need like a, a Brianna Joy. Now, if you just if you recognize who they are, because if you think in one of the little babies, the baby, that's going to be an issue in and of itself. <laughs> but, you know. If if you you know if you someone can get in the ear in LeBron's ear like you're close we just need you to just go over the ledge then yeah but then Stacy trying to put put her arm around him she's trying yeah, to put her look, arm there was a whole list of people that I honestly wanted to touch during the campaign like I I was there was a lot of time like my my days were very self directed like and sometimes I was like okay if you guys aren't gonna make me do anything or ask me to do anything in particular. I'm sitting here plotting and scheming. You're not going to listen to my advice anyway. But one of the things that I wanted to do was talk to people who seemed to be real neoliberal powerhouses that were doing the circuit and that also were beloved by liberals, like Tracy Ellis Ross, who I felt like were probably decent Uh... people, but who had asked back for politics and were just going to follow Kamala into the gates of hell, right? I'm like, someone has the contact. Put me on. Put me in, coach. But I think the one (laughs) campaign didn't have a lot of confidence in me. They didn't see the value in the people that I was identifying as having a lot of traction on social media, there was this sense that a lot of people were trying to get close to celebrities just for their own self-aggrandizement. So I felt uncomfortable even asking or suggesting this, but I was like, somebody should go and talk to these people. I don't care if it's me. Renee, who was the, uh, Renee Spellman was the original, uh, what do you call it? Um, Deputy campaign manager. And she's great. And she used to work for CAA, the talent agency. And she was the source of a lot of our contacts, like the Cardi B contact. And I was like, Renee, I don't care who it is. Like you, somebody needs to go talk to these people, but that just was not a priority of the campaign. Like, and I understand it's not the biggest priority, but it's something that I was sitting there not doing anything. Somebody like I could have done it. 
And I see Cardi B popped off like last week. I put it on my Instagram saying a lot of really great stuff. And yeah. she's still out there like doing the Bernie Yeah, rhetoric. that's my president. Yeah, she she's a real one. Like she really gets it. Has a, it's internalized and it's organic. She doesn't need to be given anybody's talking points. Like she just knows it. And it's like, why are we not in contact? Like, why is the left not using her? Like, even during the campaign, she was fully on board. And it's like, we, we had, like, Cardi B. We had Ariana Grande, who was, like, one of the top Instagram accounts of all time. I'm like, why aren't these people tweeting out like, or, like, Instagramming, like, images of voting times and campaign points? And, you know, how about Ariana can tweet, oh, isn't it interesting that Bernie Sanders is the only candidate that will cancel medical debt? Bernie Sanders is the only candidate that has full debt cancellation as part of his policy. Like, they, we weren't using it. And it makes me crazy. And again, it's not the biggest thing in the world. Everyone should organize and blah, 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 blah. But and all the- I, I'm, I'm here for trying to wokeify any of the babies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or even Jay-Z. Or even, not nah, Jay-Z, he's gone. That is some people... <laughs> I'm just, he's gone. You can just, you, I mean, that brother really said that I, they, they're trying to trickology us into thinking like, no, man. Like, and again, my yeah, my biggest thing with him is just how he tries to straddle the fence, and you really, and you really can't. Um, and uh, and the thing, oh, no name. You know what? I don't know. If she'd have a conversation. I like no. Do you know who no name is? Yeah, of course. She like okay. is like gone from social media, and I feel like it's just not talking to anybody, and doesn't want to get pitched or anything. She does, yeah, she doesn't. She's because she's really about it. But so, so, but so that's the thing. So I think about now some, you know, when people talk about getting these, you know, these, you know, these celebrities and athletes and things like that involved, you're always gonna have one person that's gonna bring up that Malcolm X quote, that video where he's just like, how come it's in the black, you know, the black uh, culture where we have our actresses and athletes be the spokesperson, you know, someone's always going to resurface that quote. Um, But the thing is to me, honestly, people be like, Oh, like, you know, we expecting, I feel like, like we should expect them to do more in a sense, because at the same time too, even regardless of if anything, they got to live on this planet and the system that they're benefiting from is going to make it. So eventually at some point, you're not going to be able to live the life that you live in. And eventually at some point you might be the last billionaire, but you, they going to people, they, they going to eat the rich. People gonna eat the rich. Eventually it's going to get to a certain point where that ends up happening. Mm-hmm. And that instead of being used against us in the like the NBA, they started the NBA Social Justice Coalition. Mm-hmm. And like now what they're going to do to affect change is they're going to give the players a day off when it's time to vote. Right. And that not only does it dumb down the players and thinking like, OK, I'm really doing something, but um, it dumbs down the people to make the people feel like, OK, let me just put all my energy into this day where the NBA says they're not going to be playing. So I have nothing else to do, but go and do this voting thing when so much needs to happen outside of it to where like, this is the things that need to be promoting. Like I'm done with personally speaking, done being impressed with the backpack giveaways. Okay. (laughs) Don't be impressed with the sneakers. It's nice and well-intentioned, but that's, it's done. We passed that. That doesn't mm-hmm. change a situation. You know, like we got to start like having those type of conversations. And, and I'm not going to lie, having those type of expectations because everybody needs to pull their weight. And them, if not anybody else, 
they have more bandwidth and capacity to do more because they have more resources than the people who are struggling to get by doing all this work. And they need to stop spending their time going on Hillary Clinton's new Hulu show or uh, Apple TV Who's going on Hillary's Clinton? Which baby is going on Hillary's Clinton's show? There there were were no babies that I saw. Megan Thee Stallion, I think, was on there. Meg went. Meg went. Mm-hmm. Damn, and she talked to Hillary. She's on. I mean, it hasn't aired yet, but in the preview, she was on there, and a couple other people that I like, some like civil rights activists from back in the day. Like a lot of people just go on there because well, I know they go on it's Hillary, there. and it is what it is. But look, I got a hard stop, and this is really traumatic. Oh my bad, my bad, Allie Grace. I was really planning after Sylvester to run through all of the women. I think you're the only ones <laughs> in the chat, and I can't now because I came up on this hard stop, and I have to go downstairs and let somebody in. I also see you red saying, put me in. And you know, I always love to hear from you. That's, and also I see some new faces, Alex, Mickey, Greg, I apologize. I'm like saying your names out loud right now because I'm trying to internalize that I'm going to call on you first and jump around uh, next time we do a call. But um, I appreciate all of you as always. We're going to go out listening to the vocal stylings of the good baby, at least the better baby. Little baby, um, and go. I will see you guys all on Monday. <laughs> Don't forget the Crystal interviews on Monday. It's going to be a banger. And also for those of you who wanted a more incisive commentary on COVID, I have a guest coming up the following Thursday that you're really going to like. So stay tuned and keep the faith. Trade my four by four for GC three. Ain't no more fearless feet. I gave him chance, a chance, a chance again. I even told him please. I find it crazy the police to shoot you and know that you dead, but still tell you to freeze. Fucked up, I seen what I seen. I guess that mean hold him down if he say he can't breathe. It's too many mothers just grieving. They killing us for no reason. Been going on for too long to get even. Throw us in cages like dogs and hyenas. I went to court and they sent me to prison. My mama was crushed when they said I can't leave. First I was drunk, then I sobered up quick when I heard all that. Time that they gave it to I He got a license plus. We just some products of our environment. How the fuck they gon' blame us? You can't fight fire with fire, I know, but at least we can turn off the flames on. Every color person ain't dumb. And all whites not racist. I be judging by the mind and heart. I ain't really in the face. Fuck up the way that we living is not getting better. You gotta know how to survive. Crazy, I had to tell all of my lovers to carry a gun when they going outside. Stay in the mirror whenever you drive. Overprotect go crazy for mine. You gotta pay attention to the sign. Seem like the blind following the blind. Thinking about everything that's going on. I boost security up in my home. I'm with my kind of they right or they wrong. I call him down here, pick up the phone, and it's five in the morning. He waking up on it. Tell him wherever I'm at, then they coming. I see blue lights, I get scared and start running. That shit be crazy, they push to protect us. Swords and handcuffs and arrest us. Why they go home at night, that shit messed up. Knowing we needed help, they neglect us. One of them who gon' make them respect us. I can see in your eye that you fed up. Fuck around, got my shot, I won't let up. They know that we a problem together. They know that we can storm anywhere. That's bigger than black and white. It's a problem with the whole way of life. It can't change overnight. But we gotta start somewhere. Might as well go ahead start here. We didn't have a hell of a year. I'ma make it count why I'm here. God is the only man I fear. Fuck it, I'm going on the front line. He gon' bust your ass if you come at that gun line. You know when the storm go away, then the sunshine. Got put your head in the game when it's crunch time. I want all my sons to grow up to be monsters. I want all my daughters to show out in public. Seem like we losing our country, but we gotta stand up for something. So this what it comes.